kinds of symbology. What is at stake? It is a big idea. A new world order where diverse nations are drawn together in common cause to achieve the universal aspirations of mankind. My question to you is, in any of your government jobs, have you ever been briefed on the subject of UFOs? And if you have, when was it? What were you told? Well, if I had been briefed on that, I'm sure it was probably classified and I couldn't talk about it. When I got out in 1989, we had cataloged 57 different species. We walked over to one side of the lab and he said, by the way, we've discovered a base. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Greetings and salutations, all my fellow Skywatchers from all corners of the globe. Welcome to Skywatchers Radio on this lovely February 25th. 2015. We are live once again on the Dark Matter Radio Network and, of course, PSN Radio, broadcasting live from New Logic Studios down in Miami, Florida. Me llamo Ángel Espino y conmigo está, como siempre, el otro tipo. ¿Cómo está otro tipo? Espérate. ¿Qué cosa? Espérate. ¿Qué cosa? Espérate. ¿Qué cosa digo yo? Hold on. Sorry about that. I had to kick myself and get back into my English mode. Sorry, I'm Cuban. That happens once in a while. You know, you get into Spanish mode. Totally happens. Man, come on. The radio does not have subtitles. What are you doing here? I It's Spanish mode, man. It just kicks in once in a while. I am Cuban. You have to forgive me. But anyway, yeah, but like I was saying... Long this is true. But like I was saying, where are you joining us from tonight, other guy? This is a good I one. I am joining you from... Driving on I-95 from New York to Philadelphia. The city of brotherly love. Well, I guess, maybe, kind of, sort of, whichever. All I know is I am going down for a nice nine-day show this week for the International Flower Show. So, uh, that's cool. That's cool. And how long are you going to be there? Uh, I just said nine days. If you can't count, I'll try. Oh again. no, I, I completely I missed it. I am going down for nine days. Completely missed that nine days part. Sorry, I was uh, distracted uh, by something dude, else. These things happen. It does. I'm so, what's going on in the wonderful world of ufology today? Well, first of all, I want to give, as always, a shout out to our head honcho here on the network, Keith Rowland. Big shout outs to uh, Big Keith. Shout outs, Keith. Thank you, thank you, Keith. And uh, shout outs to Bill and Nancy Burns from Future Theater. It should just be gospel and written already in the holy book of Skywatchers Radio that they are listening and participating, or in the background just having some fun. Oh, uh, well, definitely. But, you know, the reason I bring them up, uh, it's because something happened on the network yesterday, which was kind of a, well, it got heated on another show here on the network. And Bill Oh, really? Do tell, because I was on, I was traveling, so... Tell well, me, tell I was. Well, actually, I was. Listeners tell. I was off doing another show, as as I do on Tuesday nights, the inside the jackal's head, and I wasn't privy to what was going on. But I came to find out today that Bill was a guest on uh, Doctor J's show here on on Dark Matter, 
and uh, he was a guest on there. Uh, they had uh, some gentleman on uh, who was trying to be a nasty debunker. Okay. As uh, Stanton Friedman would call him. And Bill got into it with him. Now, I don't know all the details because I haven't heard the entire show, but I heard it got really heated. And Bill Burns, uh, like, you know, a superhero, man. He just came in and took this guy and ripped him apart. When you have the facts, you have the facts. That's what I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Now, I think the guy's name is Schaefer or Pritchard or something well, like that. I can't. I don't know. But the point is that Bill Burns, shout-outs to you and big ups for, for sticking up for ufology. And that's me getting tweeted right now about this this comment right here. Let me lower that volume. But anyway, uh, so... Other than that, uh, nothing really much has been going on. It's been a little quiet in uh, in my neighborhood. I uh, had a, a good show yesterday with uh, William J. Hall. In fact, uh, an excellent show. I want to give him a shout-out. And he has a really good book, which, you know, it's funny. I had him on that show thinking that we weren't going to get into, like, anything ufological. You know, no ufology talk. Uh, but yeah, it actually, that never happens. Never does. Not with me, anyway. It it went into that. It segued into that. It's, it's funny because he has a book called The World's Most Haunted House. So you figure, this is pretty safe, right? There's nothing about UFOs going to be talked about on this show. <laughs> Wrong. I mean, this dude is on point, and, uh, you know, this uh, it's, a, it's an amazing book, but he's on point on the stuff that he talks about uh, when, you know, it when he's talking about ghosts probably could maybe be beings from another dimension that are just uh, did, by accident I, I interacting, and we've talked about that. that. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I can't agree with with ghosts being from another dimension. Too hear many me out on this. Yeah, no, but on, hear me out on this. Hold on. Hear me out on this. Okay, hear me out okay. on this. No, no, no. Interstellar. Hear my, Interstellar. Hear my, hear, my, hear, hear my version, and then you explain to me why it's probably wrong. Okay? If there are ghosts, and we've recorded it on audio and video, and they answer with their own name when they lived in this existence, how can they be from another parallel well and this is where the paradox gets kind of simple when you think about it we're talking about parallel a universe mirror are you smoking today well you don't want to know but we're talking about a mirror universe like mirror bubble universes of our earth so in, in inadvertently we're probably interacting with a mirror copy of ourselves on another universe or maybe interacting with mirror copies of our family members. And that's why we see maybe our dead relatives. But they're not really dead. It's just we're interacting with them on another parallel universe. Think about Sliders, for example. Remember remember Sliders, the TV show? Yeah, but you needed some technology or something to open the bridge between the two. You're talking about an Einstein-Rosenberg bridge. In Correct. Parallel oh, universe. Right, but the, the theory is the same. But say you don't have the bridge or the the wormhole to jump into the bridge, but you don't have that. Okay, but guess what? You don't need that because, in all honesty, uh, maybe the universes are going to collide on their own, and this is what's happening, and this is why we get these little glimpses into, you know... Yeah, I'm, I'm not there. I'm sorry, I'm not there. I, 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 it's a good I, theory. I, I go but here's, here, well, here's, well, you're not a scientist, and the sciences have not been done, Mr. Other Guy, but here's the thing. It was still an interesting conversation, and uh, you know William oh, Hall sure is a great was. guest. So, in fact, now I think I'm going to end up booking him on Skywatchers, so we can talk about UFOs, sort of the world's most haunted house. Which, by the way, if you guys uh, want to know what the world's most haunted house is in this book, anyway, it's uh, the true story of the Bridgeport Poltergeist on Lindsley Street. 
and uh, William is from uh, that area. He wrote about the book. Oh, he wrote about the uh, the haunting in uh, here's Bridgeport. One of the, Bridgeport, yeah, and, and check that. This is a Ford uh, or wait, 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 hold on. Quote. There's Bridgeport, Connecticut. There's Bridgeport, Rhode Island, and then there's Bridgeport in the Carolinas. Which one? Uh, Connecticut. Oh, okay, fine. Check this out. The world's really? most haunted house is a thrilling and authentic account of one of the most terrifying and well-documented poltergeist hauntings of modern times. It says, I found this book to be fascinating and comprehensive. It should be required reading for anyone with a serious interest in the bizarre, paranormal disturbance. Uh, but read it with the lights on. It's kind of a creepy book. It if, really is. If you were to read that book with the lights off, you'd obviously have to be using night vision. Correct. Okay. Just want to get that out of the way. But it's funny, though, that, you know, we got into it, uh, you know, originally because of the book being about a haunted house, and it ended up going into ufology. Jesus. It follows me everywhere I go. It's amazing. Hey, the tangent worked. It, the tangent worked. You know, what, it what, is. what can I say to that? Now, speaking of ufology, tonight we have a really interesting guest. And I know you're not too familiar with our guest tonight, uh, Mr. Other Guy. No. No, no, Sadly dude, you enough. can actually say my name. You don't have to always call me the other guy, dang it. Ah, oh, man, so you made me drop my cologne because I was reaching for the book. Anyway, no, <laughs> Mr. Other Guy, I, I, I prefer calling you that. You can know, I just that's all I'm ever going to be known for. I mean, yeah, you have a face for radio, but come on, man. Oh, gee, thanks. This is just, yeah. <laughs> hey, at least there's a cartoon of you on the internet. We need to get a cartoon of you made. That's what we need. I'm going to get on top of that. I'm going to, I'm going to ask Dennis Reno, who's the guy who did the cartoon, by the way. Shout-outs to Dennis Reno. He's awesome. I don't know if anybody... Is uh, shout-out night? I'm just wondering. It is. Do you want to give a shout-out to anybody? Sure. We'll definitely give a shout-out to Jesse Marcel the third. Oh, there you go. Yeah, actually, on, yeah. yeah. You were on the phone with him, right, recently? Yeah. I, we've been speaking, going back and forth about his flying car and, you know, the FAA regulations and DOT certifications and things like that, and, you know, I, I committed to a reasonable amount of money to him on the uh, on the air, which I'm planning on working out as long as, you know, the incentivization is there and the numbers work out and, you know, everything is, you know, I got to do, obviously, you always have to do your due diligence before you put money into something, and, you know, I'm in the process of doing that and vetting, vetting what his technology is and, you know, where we think we can go with it. I agree. Do your due diligence and, on anything. But, uh, and if this, all works yeah. out in the, in the next couple of weeks, I should be dropping a decent chunk of money into his project. Very cool. Now, I don't sound it because it's been a long week, but I am truly, truly excited about the project that he has. It uh-huh. is, it, it's going to be a game changer, whether it happens in this decade or next. Um. It's it's going to be really really impressive. What I, I like is figure. he's saying that he he has uh, the possibility of having a, uh, a test vehicle done by the end of this year. Well, we've Something. been t- that's one of the things that I've been talking with him about. Initially, mm-hmm. he wanted to do a quarter scale test vehicle, and I'm going back and forth with him about doing a full size scale vehicle, a one to one, you know, a real real true prototype that you know we could actually debut and take out to some of the scientific conventions and events uh, to really show it off that it is a viable option. Nice. I can't wait to help you guys work on this. See, this is something uh-huh. that will get me out to the events more often if we're involved in something like this. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Jesus. I'll quit my day yeah. job. 
<laughs> well, you know, it's it's going to take a little bit of time, but I think it's honestly a viable thing. And if anybody is interested in talking to me about it and also putting in money to put this together, um, feel free to reach out to me to see, because I could probably answer some good questions because of the vetting process and looking over the documents, the paperwork, and I really, really think that this can, excuse the joke, this thing can, can really fly. <laughs> pun intended. By the way, yeah, uh, by the way, uh, when you have uh, news that is really, really, really uh, ready, uh, major news, please tell me first. Right. I will happily tell you first. Well, I'll tell Before you. Before you tell anybody, I, 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 I want to get that like, like little feeling inside, you know, of knowing something should, amazing. Should I tell you on the radio right now? Should no, I tell no, you tell on the radio right now? Or no, they don't I, need I to hear this. Tell, tell me later. They don't need okay, to hear fine. this. Okay, fine. I'll tell you later. Not a problem. Yeah, you tell me off, off the air. All right. All right. Oh, by the way, did you hear anything about that big giant? Uh, we don't know if it was a comet or whatever that flew across Florida. Uh, no, I didn't hear about that. Okay, Google it. Saturday evening. Nice, bright, shiny, something or other, flew across the mid part of Florida and lit up a nice couple of towns along the way. Sonic booms were heard. Oh, interesting. I, 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 was that on Open Minds? Uh... Nope. No, that was just something I saw as I was scrolling through Facebook. Through some of my friends had security camera footage and things like that. Ah, gotcha. They don't know. They don't know what it is yet, but obviously, I'm thinking it's. Probably a ball of ice or a comet or something. Well, most so likely. That's what, what a lot of these, well, that, that's a lot, what a lot of these things uh, turn out to be. Honestly, I mean, not every UFO crashes. People, I mean, geez, you'd figure, you know, they'd have better technology than that. Well, speaking of UFOs that do crash, there has been a rumor of something crashing in one of the upper lakes in Canada over the past. Uh, over that the past I saw. Week. I saw something about that on the internet where they had uh, military folks out there. Yeah, they had some military out there. They mm -hmm. there's. You know, there was a uh, cameraman who, or an amateur photographer who took photos. He's been detained, uh, although one or two photos did slip out on his phone. Oh wow! Yeah, that's that yeah. I got to I, I got to do my due diligence on this one. See, this is yeah. this is what sucks about having a, a day job where you have to work like thirteen, fourteen hours. You know. Well, maybe it's time to quit your day job, but you just need all the listeners well, to true. donate one dollar every. Every month for you to quit your day job. Listeners, that's right, folks. That if you, listeners, if you if you're you know as you're listening in, just donate one dollar to our show, and we will happily be able to quit our day jobs. There you we go. were able to count how many listeners actually are listening. <laughs> Make that happen, people. Donate. Make me quit my day job. You know what's funny though? Um, speaking of uh, quitting our day jobs. Uh, you know, one of our guests tonight, because we actually have a really good show tonight. We have two guests on, and they're going to be just amazing uh, on the show. Uh, the first okay. guest we're going to have on, her name is Lori McDonald, and I wouldn't want to have her day job. Really Why? Wouldn't. What is her day job? Lori McDonald is a clinical hypnotherapist, and uh, she works for a... Hypno, not hypno, hypno. Hypnotherapist. Yeah, you, so, see, I'm Cuban. You went a little Cuban earlier, so you really can't pronounce English. Okay? Yeah, no, it's just, it's eating alive. It's eating, it's eating me alive. But no, she's a clinical hypnotherapist at the True You Hypnotherapy, and uh, she's the founder of the Sacramento Alien Abduction and Contactee Support Group. Right. Huh? That actually sounds rather interesting, to say the least. Yes, like the wind in your background. Sounds very interesting, to say the least. Sorry, I, I'm actually a co-pilot today. I'm not driving, and that you're always my co-pilot. 
you know, <laughs> that was just the engine to get around some idiot driving, that's all. Uh, well, anyway, uh, and Sorry. during the second hour, we're going to have uh, none other than Scott Island Roberts is going to be back with us. Of course, he's a designer, illustrator, writer, and, uh, you know, fiction and nonfiction. Uh, the man does everything. He's a, also a great guest, and uh, we love having him on the show. He's going to be with us for about 40 minutes during the second hour, so that's going to be really cool. Great show tonight, man. Great, great show. In fact, we're going to go uh, to break in a couple of minutes here, uh, but I do want to tell everybody who's listening in, if do if you do want to call in, you know, we have open lines, as always, 786-245-8127. But also, we are going to have uh, our usual blast from the a-holes tonight and if you guys want to get in on that this is the way you do it all right this is uh where you got to submit your emails immediately because you know we have somebody screening them so they can get through the system remember it's a, it's a long process it's a messy one sometimes and we don't want to think it's clogged in there so <laughs> that's right we want to hear the blasts from the a-hole folks right so remember this is where you want to submit your emails to a hole at skywatchersradio.com now this is a real email i'm not kidding folks a hole. Wait, wait, hold at, on. How, how do you spell hole? H O L E or H O L E? Yeah, a hole. Okay. It's a hole. A hole. Exactly. A hole at skywatchersradio.com. It's a real email. Send it over there, and we we will read your blast uh, during the second hour, uh, right after we're done with our guest, Mister Scott Allen Roberts. Ah, he's a good guy. We're going to be back in a couple minutes with our guest Lori McDonald, who's going to be the guest of the first hour here, and. Uh, it's going to be fun. We're going to talk about contact D's. Huh? All right. My favorite subject. Contact D's. We'll be right back. This is James Swagger, host of Capricorn Radio. I'm also an author, engineer, and researcher. Capricorn Radio covers alternative history, alternative science, philosophy, and truth-oriented discussions. We are proud to be on the Dark Matter Radio Network, live at 8pm Saturdays, Eastern Standard Time. You can catch extra info on darkmatterradio.net, jameswagger.com for yours truly, CapricornMembers.com for the archives. Don't forget, truth is not democratic. Truth is truth. Hello, I'm Bruce Pearson, documentary producer, investigator, and co-host of Unknown Origins Radio, which airs each Thursday evening from 8 till 10 p.m. Eastern Time right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network. Please join me and my colleague Mark Johnson for two hours of thought-provoking interviews discussing some of today's most intriguing subjects with researchers, authors, and eyewitnesses on a range of topics. So whether you're a newcomer to the community of exploration of the unexplained or a seasoned veteran and investigator, I'm sure you will find interesting content and content Concepts on Unknown Origins Radio right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network. And I encourage you to check out the entire lineup of unique programming here on the network. There's truly something for everyone. 
Thanks for listening, and we look forward to sharing our fascinating guests and their topics on Unknown Origins Radio, Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern here on the Dark Matter Radio Network. Hi, this is Solaris Blue Raven with Hyperspace on the Dark Matter Radio Network. Please tune in on Tuesdays for an intriguing show pertaining to covert technology, UFOs, paranormal, mysticism, and spirituality. Between science and ignorance, there is filler. Thank you, random British guy. I am Wes Forsyth, the host of Paranormal Filler, my weekly radio show where I explore many areas of the paranormal while trying to keep a balance between believer and skeptic. No topic is off limits. No viewpoint is silenced. Paranormal Filler on the Dark Matter Radio Network. Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I'm Ryan Gable, host of the Secret Teachings Radio Show. I always attempt to bring you the best information that I possibly can on all sides of each and every story, from current events to ancient history to philosophy, symbolism, the paranormal, comparative religions, the occult, alternative science, and much more. There is not a single topic that we do not cover in relation to the unexplained and the misunderstood. I am not here to tell you what I say is truth, but to allow you to decide for yourself based on the evidence presented and the dots connected. There is no such thing as negative or positive. These are dimensional characteristics that we view through our perceptions. To catch my show, The Secret Teachings, we air every Saturday on the Dark Matter Radio Network at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 7 p.m. Pacific. You can also listen on thesecretteachings.info for a free show archive of all of our past episodes. Try as you might, but no amount of disinformation, propaganda, rhetoric, or trolling on the internet will change the truth. The truth is the truth, regardless if the mass is accepted as is, or if it is accepted by only one out of billions. For more information, you can again visit thesecretteachings.info. I'm Ryan Gable. Namaste. All right, everybody, welcome back to Skywatchers Radio right here on, once again, the Dark Matter Radio Network and PSN Radio. We are live, as always, and you can check out the chat room over on www.psn-radio.com. With us now is the guest of this first hour, Ms. Lori McDonald. Welcome to the show, ma'am. And let me just say that you have one of the hardest day jobs ever, I think, in this field. You know, it can be a hard job sometimes. It's uh, harder at night. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show here with us and spending some uh, quality time with us. Uh, now, you know, give a, give the audience a little bit a brief of your background because I just really uh, became you know aware of you recently when you were on unraveling the secrets uh, with uh, Tim Beckley. Shout out to Tim Beckley, and of course, is a lovely, lovely co-host, Miss Anderson, and. Um, you know, it fascinates me anytime I speak to somebody who does what you do. Uh, for example, when you, you counsel abductees, uh, what got you interested in doing this and, and doing hypnotherapy on these folks? 
Well, it's kind of an interesting story. Actually, I was interested in the mind always, and um, the power of hypnosis seemed quite profound when I was young and all of the reading I did on it. I studied social behavioralism for a while, but um, then I enrolled into the Sacramento Institute of Alchemical Hypnotherapy, which is a transformational hypnotherapy, and I finished in Santa Fe, but during the process of examination, you have to re- uh, you have to regress somebody, and then address a particular subject, and then bring them back up. And they test you on that. They want to make sure you can do that before they send you out in the world. And uh, now, can during- I ask a question, if I may? Sure. Now you said it was it was a alchemic Al- hypnotherapy yeah, school, right? Alchemy. Okay. So does that mean you were involved in? Um, utilizing drugs, medication, or other types of substances to induce and the he's, tr- he's trying to get high tonight on his trip. Can you uh, supply him? <laughs> I am <laughs> not. Come on. No, it's all... No, that's uh, a good question, fine. actually, though. No, it's it's all psychotherapy. There's no okay. um, pharmaceuticals There's no pharmacology. Involved. There's no pharmaceuticals. No pharmaceuticals involved, right? No, not none whatsoever. So, so during the examination process, I... Uh, induced a person, regressed them back to a particular age, and while they were about to express something, um, their story changed, and they were all of a sudden seeing a UFO. They were camping. He was with his brother. Uh, They saw it hover, then land. They saw entities, and right when I was about to ask a question, a ball of light about the size of a softball appeared right above his head and zipped down to the end of his body. And, you know, I'm in the middle of an examination, and I turn and look over my shoulders to see if anybody else saw it, and uh, three out of the five judges did see it, and Mm. they were, like, wide-eyed and uh, jaws open, and they indicated for me to continue when I started to talk to him again. It was like he was clean. He had no memory of at all about talking about a UFO or seeing the entities. And he had my curiosity peaked. Um, he was just about to describe the entity and gone. So I've been very intrigued since then. And then all of a sudden, um, I started getting lots and lots of calls. A lot, of, a lot was happening and people wanted to explore it. So, in other words, uh, the, the whole UFO uh, contact thief thing just kind of happened by chance. Well, yes, well, let me ask you, how no. long ago did this happen, by the way? Uh, that was back in 1996. Wow. Okay, since video yeah. cameras were around, please tell me that you were recording your test and your, your certification there. Tell me this no. video. No, they didn't, but I do have um, a plethora of other fantastic videos Um that show some pretty good-looking uh, UFOs in infrared video. And um, there's a picture on my Facebook page, actually. Um, I was driving from Sacramento to San Diego, and I hit the grapevine right about uh, 50 miles in north of Los Angeles. And I knew I felt like I was being followed. And I kept looking, and I glimpsed several times what I thought was a UFO. So I finally just pulled over quickly at a 
a Triple J gas station and whipped out my digital camera, turned around and took a picture and got a daytime picture of a UFO. And within a matter of seconds, there were just helicopters everywhere. So I got back into my car and took off and posted the picture. I mean, what else could I do? Has any government official ever come uh, knocking at your door about that picture? Uh, not about that picture. <laughs> <laughs> well, other pictures? Uh, what else uh, has happened that's caught their attention? Well, um, I've had an incident earlier on. Um, I got a little bit, was my own fault, I guess. I got a little bit too close to a base. Uh, we would go out to gather evidence, and we would set up in the daytime and mark our horizons and come back with the cameras at night to film and we got in a little bit of trouble, but we've had, I've had an incident too where just out of nowhere, where there shouldn't have been anyone, we didn't hear any vehicles approaching yet, there was one all of a sudden. Um, he, these two men in suits came over, um, went right into the back of my boogie van, which back in the day, you know, we didn't have everything on laptops. Then I had actual star maps and... Um, books. Oh, that, that stuff that uh, the older folks <laughs> called paper, right? Yeah, everything was paper. <laughs> we we had lights strapped oh, to our Oh, way back even. when. But they went right through my stuff. They rifled through everything, and I kept asking them who they were, and they said they were private security, so I continued with private security for what or who or where. I mean, where am I trespassing? And they didn't... Um, they weren't actually in the position to be answering the questions. Where, where, so. where was this again? Was this in Area 51 where you were driving? No, no. no. actually, uh, that incident was just uh, east of Sacramento here. Oh, okay. Okay. What yeah. bases around there? Yeah, what bases are on there? Well, actually, there's bases all, o- all over here from Sacramento uh, all through the Bay Area. There's Beale Air Force Base and... Um, McLennan Air Force Base, and there's um, Travis Air Force Base. I mean, they're all over the place here, so so there's no shortage of, of them. Do you, but. do you think this was some kind of uh, alien ship uh, that you saw, or do you think it was a government, uh, maybe spy plane or uh, some kind of craft they were testing? And uh, if well, that is the case, you know, why were they following you? Uh, that's a good question. I really don't know. I mean, it's always just speculation. We don't have the answers. I mean, maybe companies like Lockheed Martin and so forth have the answers because in their own manual. Well, they'll never tell. They'll never tell well, us. <laughs> they refer to them as AVCs as opposed to UFOs, which apparently stands for Alien Visitation Craft. So those would be identified craft. The other are still unidentified and based on the amount of different species they say are currently visiting our planet it could be a number there's about five or six in the top ranking that we can speculate i mean i just had a picture brought to me of a daytime craft accidentally taken by a photographer who sold a house and was creating a postcard for a local real estate company and there's a craft, looks like it cut right out of the cloud. And it's a perfect picture, you know, and I've contacted the real estate company, the realtors on it, trying to ask for their printer. I'm trying to find who took the picture. They won't give me any information at all, but 
which is ridiculous. And it's clear as can be. So there's lots of different craft appearing. And I would say, based on the proximity to a home, it was most likely an abduction craft. They are getting better at returning people. I mean, over the decades, we hear lots of stories of people being returned to the wrong room or, sadly, to the wrong house, which was the case with a couple of little boys who went missing. And they had been telling the parents about uh, seeing UFOs. The children were no longer in the pool. They were swimming in the pool in the backyard. The mother checked on them, went back, and the kids weren't there. She became frantic, looking everywhere. Sadly, shortly later, the children were found uh, several doors down in an actual in-ground pool, completely different than their much more shallow play pool. The kids, they don't know how they could have got into the yard. There was no way for them to enter or climb the fence or get in in any way. And yet both the children were found drowned. Some wow. their parents wow. speculated that maybe accidental where the children are put back. A lot of people are left standing outside of their house or in a different room and they wake up and they sense they're being told to go back. But then, scariest of all, are the reports that I've had firsthand um, where a person awakens where they feel like they're being transported, levitated through the air or through a wall, and they wake up halfway through and begin to panic. And they are then in the presence of what they say are, based on the physical description, a tall gray that's actually, I mean, I've found it, at least in my research over the last decade, uh, Laurie, to be uh, the common uh, abductee scenario. Uh, it know, was. For and a long time, yeah. They would yeah. levitate, go through the wall, and you know, there'll be tall grays. Uh, are you still getting those kind of reports uh, with your patients? Uh, the, only when they're regressed back to a certain time. <laughs> and so it makes huh. sense. So if uh, the, we're looking at an incident in the 80s or the 90s, well, it still happens. No, the, don't, they're, the grays, the tall and short grays, actually, it's not uncommon uh, for it to be reported that there's multiple entities, um, sometimes mantis, sometimes reptilian, but generally always tall and short grays. It's, huh. There's a hierarchy, and um, the shorter grays seem to work for the tall grays. The tall grays seem to work for the reptilians, and everybody works for the mantis. And in reality, they all work for Obama. Yeah, oh, wow. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Just, kidding. Just, just kidding. just kidding. Well, no shots at Obama tonight. <laughs> No, yeah, well, that is that, that's fascinating though, Lauren. No, that's fascinating though. Real quick, not to cut you off, sorry, but uh, it, it's fascinating to me uh, that it is a time period thing. Uh, and you say they're getting better at dropping people off. Uh, do you think also it might correlate with the psyche of the nation itself uh, in, the, in these time periods? And the reason I say that is because, of course, in the '90s, when a lot of abductees were claiming this scenario, we had the X Files on TV where. The basis of the show was Mulder's sister was abducted, and this was the exact 
way it was done. She was levitated through a wall, and the aliens were tall grays. I mean, it was the same That's exact true. scenario. Do you That's think that right. that might have played a part in it? Because a lot of times, uh, and I found this also uh, in the last decade to be true, whenever there's major movies or anything that is uh, on TV that is really popular that deals with UFOs or aliens on a realistic type of level... Mm-hmm. It seems that it, there's a spike in in, in uh, sightings, in abductions, uh, and I wonder how much of that is authentic. How much of that is part of the psyche uh, of what people are watching, and maybe they're they're they want to be well, a part I'll, of that. So I badly. have the answer for you there. Let me tell okay. you. Okay. 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 Uh, Go ahead. <laughs> first off, have you ever heard of a gentleman by the name of Wes Bateman? Wes Bateman sounds I very can't. familiar. He's also Wes, familiar to me, but. Okay, Wes Bateman uh, was a very well-known extraterrestrial telepathic contactee. Uh, he had numerous uh, contact uh, communications that he took very good care of. He eventually, after decades of silence, uh, came forward and told all of his stories to his very good friend, Gene Roddenberry, who turned his stories into Star Trek, a very famous TV show. And then there's Close Encounters. Yeah, I've heard of that show. Yeah. Yeah. And then Close (laughs) Encounters, uh, Steven Spielberg, that's right up here a little bit north of Sacramento. And uh, there's an area called a town called Calusa, and Calusa is where the first incident took place. Steven Spielberg brought them out there and interviewed the family that this happened to. It was, it's based on, loosely, on a true story, but Calusa is the area, and to this very day, um, I get clients from that area, and I have one coming saying he's seeing still the same type of entity, the gray, all the time. He's placed security cameras all over his house. He's even got one in his doorbell. That's a reverse one so he can see people approaching. And so even though, yes, it is in the uh, collective conscious of the country, it translates. But what I'm seeing now are people describing a different type of uh, entity, different type of relationship with these extraterrestrials. It's almost as if it's really not so important what the craft looked like or where it came from or what entity it was. It, but what might be important here is the fact that your reality has changed. It has grown to encompass both the unseen and the seen worlds and your consciousness now is expanding. And so if we just get past the particular frequency band where the extraterrestrials exist and try to move out further, we may develop consciousness expansion, which very well may be our own evolution. It may be what we're destined to be if we don't get so tied up chasing out which entity or which craft we're seeing. I mean, of course, there's a lot of them are military and people are pushing for disclosure like Stephen Bassett and perhaps... Yes, um, indeed. Yeah, and, and, you know, maybe with the congressional hearings and the petitions that have si- that are signed, mm-hmm. we'll get disclosure. I mean, do we you think that, really Do you think that really might happen? I mean, do you think that I, really would happen though, at this point? I, I think mean, with Podesta saying his biggest regret is not yeah. speaking about to the UFOs, and I think with 
Ron Hellyer, the former defense minister of Canada during the Cold War, saying that uh -huh. absolutely there is an extraterrestrial presence on this planet. And Nick Pope also stating that uh, the British were involved in their own uh, secrets with mm -hmm. UFOs. We've got mm -hmm. our own books, many written on Eisenhower, who we believe probably did have some type of a contractual agreement with the Greys where they traded uh, roughly, they said 250,000 people were allowed to be experimented Exchanged, upon. Exchanged, right. Yes. Exchanged. Mm -hmm. um, mostly GIs, though, because this way the government could double track them, because they always know where their GIs are. And um, so that we see in abduction cases that there's often a military connection or a scientific or medical connection. Um, we see that they're generational, that's for sure. Well, here, One here, let me ask you, go ahead. can I throw out a question? Yeah, um, yeah go, ahead, go ahead. You, will, you keep on referring, by the way, to, in you know, for this country. Since you are a, I would assume, a part of some type of a association for hypnotherapists, uh, mm -hmm. either on a national or a global level, mm -hmm, has, the, has the type of entity been persistently the same throughout all the abduction cases that are being recorded on a global level? Or are we the only ones that are primarily dealing with the greys? No. I mean, we just have to understand uh, the languaging and verbiage of the people expressing it. I mean, the Asians and uh, Middle Easterns say uh, jinn. And so they have their own cultural belief systems based on it. Very religious people say demons uh, because that's the right. filter that they're viewing it through. I mean, and so it's perspective. Um, Lori, I'm glad you brought that up because... They're looking, they're looking at it even through regression therapy. They Are they describing the similar... Shape, Some of them um, are feel. very similar. And mm -hmm. I have an ET artist in our uh, the Sacramento Alien Abduction and Contactee Support Group. And she's a very talented artist, and um, she'll work very much like a police uh, artist. Where sketch artist. Right, a sketch artist, take the description. Right. And uh, so this is a, a, a new branch that we're looking at, and so we're going to see. We're going to see how close they are, because it's very easy to say the eyes were this or that, but... Um, so absolutely, more evidence and as much that as physical descriptions and physical evidence that we can get is important. You know, I had somebody contacting me earlier asking me, listen, um, can you help me? I need discrete x-rays. You know, I have uh, this triangular shaped mark. It feels like this. You know, so I said, you know, photograph it, send me the pictures. He did. I have them. Um, and I'm looking. We'll find find somebody to do that. You know, people are doing what they have to, but the numbers are so steadily increasing. I mean, currently they're stating that uh, roughly 280 million people worldwide claim to be abducted. That would be based on a 4% value system. And uh, in my group, I have about 75 people, and I asked them uh, – how many of you reported? Only two. So in a group where the topic is, you know, abduction and, and contact uh, for experiencers, two of them reported and look at this number. So that number has <laughs> got to be astronomically much higher. So, 
So we well, have to. Who do they report it to? Is the next question. MUFON. Uh, MUFON. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of different organizations they can report right. it to. Right. Uh, UFOReport.com. Hell, uh, worse, tell your local therapy therapist. I mean, just, you know. And I do get a lot of reports, I have to say. Uh, because I gather research, I am writing a book right now called uh, The Extraterrestrial Interference. And um, so, yeah, people are providing me with information. I, one of the group members has given me his medical records as well as his MRIs. He's elderly. He's uh, just about 80. And um, he's had he is a lifetime experiencer. He was a, you know pre-med student he was in the navy he believes he has two implants actually three one in the pineal gland those are the mris that i have and um he says that he has uh had an implant behind the knee and then one closer to the groin but over the years they're moving together so i took out the camera and i i filmed them and i touched it and when i pushed on it it retracted. It retreated like, like Miss Pac-Man. And uh-huh. I took the pressure off. It moved back, and it was eerie. So I continued to film them, and he expressed his view, saying that when they touch, they die. he thinks he'll die. And he then gave me permission on film to then come back and film his body post this happened not ever looking forward to doing something like that i don't know what it would prove i'm not sure it hmm. well i mean you'd be I'm able not to sure at least, about that but he believes you'll be able to at least you'll be able to maybe get some results of what these things are uh once they do the autopsy on them right well yes and some of the implants that have been removed and looked at you know contain both Organic and organic materials, uh, but here's the thing, though the, the one the one in his uh, knee and his uh, near his groin that could be removed surgically now. Why doesn't he have it surgically removed? They're, they have a life of their own. He believes <laughs> they're moving. He's watching them. He's been, I don't know. He he's probably not really wanting to risk that. Um, he's from a generation where this isn't something. A topic that was easily discussed without one being ridiculed and really have we changed that much I mean I'm hoping that we have but sadly I do see that experiencers who come forward no matter how credible uh, you know people still will often ridicule them or they risk losing their job and you know we we have seen that and I've had people in my group say that they're at risk too they can't let people know because they'll get fired. I think part of there the, is sexual yeah. harassment, but no UFO harassment. Uh, yeah, you know, well, that, that's true. But you know, right. I think part of it, part of it, I think, is when people hear somebody talk about their experience and they start off, "Well, I had a dream and I woke up and I couldn't move in my dream." Yeah, immediately, the skeptic mind starts saying, "Well, you're you're suffering from sleep paralysis." Mm-hmm. And you hallucinated the rest. Because, look, I suffer from sleep paralysis myself. I've been in that position where I wake up and I can't move. And you really do feel like there's something in the room with you or somebody's looking at you or, or there's something there. I mean, I've had that happen to me several times in the past. Right. It's called the hypnogonic state. And it's because right. the sleep uh, chemical in the brain has been released for the body. But the conscious mind hasn't received it yet. The body's still right. asleep. You're alert. Who the presence that you feel is yourself 
it de- depends. Now, it's, then that happens. And other people, though, who have had the same type of sleep paralysis and then feel that they're seeing an entity, their stories do go a little bit further. They break from the paralysis. There's more going on and they're more lucid. Um, that's There's a the level of lucidity through the experience is what matters. And it's not for naught. The extraterrestrials most likely can s- simulate the sleep chemical so that they can harvest what they want. I mean, they apparently do it with cows. Speaking of which, yeah, Mm -hmm. speaking of which, I mean, that's that's an interesting phenomenon in itself, the whole cow mutilation phenomenon. I mean, how does one explain that, for example, what farmers need to mutilate their own cows? Right, not at the cost. I mean, they've got a big investment in them. They've fed and watered them. And um, paying on the property and so on and so right, forth. Right, right. So that's their money, right. So they're certainly not going to do that. There's absolutely no motivation. But uh, what's it's the cow has two stomachs. And there's been some uh, theories that they put um, fetuses in them on a holding ground. I don't know. I've, I've heard a couple of you know, people. I, I've heard people say that actually for the hybrids and that's yeah. how they, they birth some hybrids when they're taken from the womb early or something like that i mean i've actually heard yeah. uh, folks talk about that before which would make sense i mean look at the matrix you know where they grew people in in little pods that look like a womb we were right. growing in a womb so it, it would make sense to them to create an artificial womb if they're creating hybrids you can't have the mother go full term on earth well with an alien baby you know you know <laughs> it's not unusual for me being a regression hypnotherapist, uh, to hear accounts of, you know, missing babies and hybrid babies, it is part of the subculture of ufology is the whole hybrid program. I mean, when they're harvested and uh, ovum, sperm is taken, you know, what for what purpose? You know, what are they doing with it? It's speculated that the greys live to be about 900 years old, 1,000 years old, and then they die. Um, they that they're you know they're doing this to preserve their race and they're trying to create you know a being. I'm not really sure I, I buy into that. Um, here's a here's a working theory I have, Laurie, and uh, maybe you might uh you know you might tell me if it's good or not if it works for you. Sure. Uh, my theory on the whole hybrid thing is uh, if they really are being genetically created by greys or whatever the Anunnaki or whoever created life on Earth, whatever, if there is that genetic uh, thing going on, uh, perhaps this is their job, and they do this from planet to planet, create life and then seed it on a planet, and just leave it there and let it flourish. And maybe these beings literally they do this as a, as a way of this is their, what they do. This is their job, and they just go to start every star system and create an intelligent life forms. And- we're the pollen. I mean, seriously. Well, we, you well, know, they're saying really. 22.2 subspecies of gray, and our own uh, DNA shows that there, there's a lot to that. Mistakes. And if you yeah. look at it, um, they're all have the same torso, arms, and legs, and the same right, humanoid shape, whether it looks like a praying mantis or. The, which is what the mantis look like, or an ant, which is what the greys look like. I mean, these are both 
huge thriving cultures um, in our ecosystem. And so who knows what they can genetically spice. The point is, should they be allowed to? Um, and I'm going to go with no, because they are creating what is called a post-abduction stress disorder that people do suffer from and it comes with an entire list of symptoms and it's a real syndrome. It was coined by Rose Hargrove who was a registered psychiatric nurse and this is something that exists and it's caused by this type of extraterrestrial interference. Should they be allowed to do that? No. I know people say, well, I created a a soul contract and I agreed. I don't believe that either. I mean, it's a generational thing. So every single person in your family for your whole bloodline agreed to do that? I don't think so. That's too much of a coincidence. What do you think of the theory? Hang on. If the government government has allowed a quarter of a million people to be experimented on, you know, they, their contract, uh, unfortunately, we're part of the cattle or the population of the sheeple. Uh, well, here, 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 here's a better question. Hold on, check this out. Uh, how about this, for example? Say the government are the ones that are pulling off these abductions, and it's all uh, a big conspiracy and a big hoax, and the government is actually the aliens, and there's no aliens doing it. Uh, and they're doing it because, guess what? Human cloning is illegal. Uh, there's certain things that they cannot do legally with uh, this kind of science. Maybe this is something that's being done in a black ops type of way to do the science without having to, you know, having to go through all the the loopholes of the legal the legal avenues that they have no, to go through. It, there's just too many people around the world for too many years stating that you know this type of thing is happening, and it's we have our well, yeah, but a, but a, a hoax, yeah, but a, a hoax oh. can be carried around. A hoax can be carried for years and years and years. That and doesn't account for the ancient alien theories, um, and uh, the government doesn't need to create a hoax where they're going to have to what create some type of holographic imagery that they can beam into the sky to oh, look like I, a I'll UFO tell you, I'll tell you what control the masses. That's what church <laughs> I, is for. No, I thought well, that's true too. But here, I'll tell you what, though. Have you ever read "Behold a Pale Horse" by William Cooper? Uh, no, I have not. But I think okay, I know where I, you're going with this. I, I highly recommend you read it because in that book, William Cooper talks about the government doing a false flag operation on the entire United States, where they're going to hoax alien intervention or alien interaction or an alien scenario to fool the population and to kind of you know do what this might be. Uh, so, I mean, I wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility that the government might be behind the entire thing. Uh, it also explains why, for example, they've come out with like 30 different stories to Roswell. Keep them confused. Keep them guessing. Well, keep that's them entertained. true. Look I at also know, the Richard sure, Doty I, thing in the 80s that came out with Mirage Man. watches never really knows what time it is. Absolutely. And so they'll keep the people confused until the people don't rely on the government for their source of information when we can compile it and the researchers can gather it and you can take credible people that perhaps were former government. I mean, why is it necessary that we have the United States government or the leaders of a particular church go, okay, yeah, all right, it's true. 
and then people can change their minds. I think for the amount of experiencers and the ones that I've worked with over the years, they don't require that. Now, their reality's already changed. Their core belief system, what they trust in everything has already been altered and changed forever. They're now moving beyond that into a, a broader way of thinking, an, an expanded consciousness where there is a possibility to interact with a galactic neighbor, but not in an abduction scenario, in, in an ability to, to re- give and receive information, hopefully to perpetuate the betterment of humanity where we look at the abduction scenario and this is something that what a thief in the night comes and robs and takes um, generally against one's will leaving you know psychological harm where we need to move past that and maybe suppress that make it illegal or void the contract i mean maybe get another lawyer to look at it because uh, at this point um I think if the people came and had the information disclosed, we could see and stop it. But the problem with disclosure is we're going to see where we were lied to. And then when people see that they were lied to, they're going to become resentful. Unless they have a very good That's reason to do it. Well, yeah, but here's the thing. Yeah, but here's the thing, though. Uh, Americans are already resentful with their own government. In fact, uh, most of the world is resentful with their government. Uh, we're seeing more and more uprising every month, every year, of different countries where the people are just fed up with what is going on in their country. And True. this is just happening on a global scale. Uh, I don't think the government really has a leg to stand on if they think that they can, can continue a hoax this large from a longer uh, that's why I, you know this is why I, I get into it with Steve Bassett when we have him on uh, about how much the government actually knows I think the government knows very very little I think I think a lot of it is stuff that might be happening outside of their control now that doesn't mean there's a shadow government or a pocket within the government that knows much much more but when you're talking about folks like Obama or uh, the vice president or you know the cabinet chief I mean these guys don't know what's going on no, they're, they're I totally agree with that I, I absolutely agree with that I mean, uh, they they don't. This is the problem. They don't have control over the situation. The last None. thing the American government wants to do is come forward and say, "Yeah, we have we're having some type of uh, interaction with them, but we have no control over the situation. We're outnumbered. We're outpowered. We're out everything." So, I mean, we can't come and put, make ourselves look weak by expressing that we'll appear weak to the rest of the world. There's a political angle that would prevent right. them from full disclosure. I would think that would be their priority one. Not so much what the, you know, just what the whole, the other rest of the world is going to say, here's your weakness. And... <laughs> <laughs> well, here I, I'm going to say something that's probably going to be a little controversial here, and, and just bear with me for one second. I, I'm going to actually excuse the government for their cover-up if there is a cover-up. And the reason I say this is because I fully understand why there would be a need for a cover-up if this is real and it's a reality that aliens have landed on Earth, they've crashed, they've been here, maybe they seeded us. I understand why they would need uh, to be uh, to for everything to be hushed up, especially in the 40s and 50s. I completely understand it. And I'm not even talking about on a scary level because the population are going to get scared and run in the streets with their underwear hanging out of their heads and shotguns blasting, scared the aliens are coming to take them. No, not because of that. Simply because of the technology involved. That technology, to whoever possesses and owns it, is better than gold. 
Right. We're talking about uh, technology that could be, what, hundreds, thousands, millions of years more advanced than anything here on Earth, which, by the way, would not take five or six years to discover how it works, especially if there was no you know, living beings on this crash at Roswell or, or any of the other crashes. If they were all dead, we can't ask them, hey, Billy Bob, uh, EBE, can you please uh, you know, make this thing work? You can't ask anybody, right? So how long do you think it would take human beings to back-engineer and find out how some of this technology works? Maybe decades, maybe hundreds of years. So well, I completely a, understand that. There's a that couple level. of ways to reverse engineer where it might not take as long as you might think. But yes, uh, but when yeah, you're dealing I with understand. something that's completely alien, uh, it, you know, for example, we might be looking at a wire that to, to us it might look like uh, fiber optic, but it might be something completely different that when we dissect it, it might take years to figure out. That's not a fiber optic. Yeah, no, that's I get it. But any technology know? that we're going to figure out from them, the problem is it's going to be turned into a weapon. And I mean, when this type of technology really could be used for free energy. Uh, for the an advanced infrastructure, for a num- for advanced medicine, absolutely. I mean, because I know that some of the technology they talk about, even with them, um, psychotronics and radionics and the PSI warfare that they do, all of those things can actually be used for healing. Well, we're assuming that a lot of this stuff is available. Maybe none of that stuff came with a crash. Um. You know, let's just say that uh, these aliens were tourists, space tourists, or just flying by. They crashed. I mean, really, are they going to have an entire pharmaceutical inside their ship, and including all kinds of different uh, technologies that to us would be bizarre and uh, completely earth-shattering? Maybe not. Maybe their ship is very basic, uh, you know, just a typical pod type of thing with very basic technologies that is still very strange to us, but not earth-shattering as it'll heal everybody's illnesses or it'll give no, us free no, power. No, no, not on that particular, not from the raw. I mean, we, 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 no, but across the board, we got to, like, really look at the crafts themselves and you know what technology well, might be there the motherships i would imagine well i don't think there's been there. a crash of a mothership <laughs> well is the mothership where we've heard lots of reports where a large craft opens up and several smaller pods or smaller right. saucers come flying out and we don't know what if they have families and one of their teenagers, you know, weren't supposed to go out and stole one of the pods and crashed on Earth. I mean, yeah, could happen. We have no idea. But uh, we have no idea what their dynamics are like. Well, actually, we're, we are learning. You know, we're, we're learning a little bit about their psyche based on... Yeah, they came here on alien prom night. That's it. And uh, they pretty much screwed up. Well, they, they, there's a lot of information, though, where people are very credible have no reason to make it up, and I, I can't see that uh, a government would go through such a elaborate hoax. Well, I think the government would go through the hoax. I mean, the whole thing is, is the Brookings Institute report that they did in the 60s basically theorized that should disclosure actually happen and evidence of alien life happen, it would throw the world's financial markets and most world religions into such a total frenzy that societal collapse could realistically happen. Well, and they're trying to circumvent such things like that. Uh, The Pope announced in May uh, 2010, I believe, that uh, in the event that the extraterrestrials make their presence on the planet known, he would be happy to baptize them. And that was a... This is a fact. and, Mm -hmm. And then... 
he appointed his I, I, head hang on one second, demonologist. Hang on one second. I don't believe. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Google I don't it. Go he ahead, exactly Google it. it that way. I believe I it was believe May the tenth. Oh no, no, it, no, no. The Pope did say something then, but I don't well, think he, that he, if the alien presence made itself known, he said if there were aliens, not that he knows that they're there and right. they would make the presence known. He said if aliens were, there were. I think he said something about there be part of God's plan because there there be our right. brothers in the cosmos or something along those lines. But look, right. any acknowledgement, well, look, hold on, but any acknowledgement whatsoever from the Church of all people, oh Jesus, anything they say, uh, uh, you know, about this, uh, it has to be looked at not only with a grain of salt, but also with a whole lot of curiosity. Because why would the Pope say anything about UFOs or aliens? He appointed their head demonologist to handle, which is also him. very funny, by the way. It, yeah, the, I mean, that's strange. Okay, he appointed the head demonologist to take a look at uh, any of the extraterrestrial stuff. Not their head of astronomy or of a math department or anything like that. But there, I believe it's called a chief demonologist. And that's who is in charge. Um, he's an Italian fellow and he's written several books on the subject and he's... Uh, very accredited, but he's been appointed by the Pope to handle anything to do with extraterrestrials. I think that says something. I'm not sure what, but it's something. <laughs> well, also, uh, did you know that the, the Pope in the Vatican has a huge telescope and it's called the Lucifer? It's called Lucifer? Yeah. No, I actually did not know that. They called their telescope Lucifer. I did know that they found many oblong... Uh, skulls in the catacombs underneath the Vatican. That, oh, really? Yeah, and I find that to be quite interesting, and those are speculated to possibly be extraterrestrial. That is a speculation that uh, that is running wild. I think actually that uh, I'm, I don't know. I'm not 100% believer that that's what it is. To be honest with you, Larry, I think that's people honoring the extraterrestrials. Uh, actually, elongating skulls is a custom in Africa. Uh, mm -hmm. But why was it done in that time period? We really don't know. Uh, the Egyptians have uh, found elongated skulls uh, in pyramids. Yes. Why did they do it? Well, a lot of people think it's to honor the gods, right? Whoever these well, gods were. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? Correct. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And, and look, you know, I do believe that, that there is a presence of some sort on Earth. But honestly, how much of a presence do you think that there really is going on at the moment? Do you think is as prevalent, or, or some of these people maybe, you know, especially some of the folks that you know that have come forward in the last fifteen, twenty years uh, with abduction scenarios or abduction uh, stories? Uh, how many of them? maybe are misinterpreting uh, an abuse that might be going on in their past right. well, and, no, and kind of camouflaging it with this. I wish I knew an, an exact percentage, but uh, most definitely uh, there is a percentage of cases that are not uh, extraterrestrial at all. And the person has a fragmented memory and then they, to cope, they create a different scenario of what happened. And there's also a ritual abuse uh, that happens to young children. And they also create, you know, another story to cover it up. And then there actually is extraterrestrial abduction in a screen memory is implanted in the person and so they have a different memory until the conscious mind begins to seep 
and the subconscious bubbles up and the memory starts to come through. People begin to put it together and see that something actually did happen. Mm. And there's good to see commonalities. I mean, there's a list of common factors that are all the same. And there are some that are have very little publication. So it's not something that can be replicated in the media often or hardly ever. And um, we listen to hear when people are telling their stories to see if this particular detail comes up and um, so it's not you know we try to keep a little bit back because like you say you know people can definitely tap into that collective conscious way of thinking and if the uh, extraterrestrial of the decade is a reptile or reptoid looking (laughs) then perhaps that they're seeing reptoids and you know everybody's morphing into a reptile so we and look, it, it's happened before, back in the, what, the 50s were Little Green Men. That was the popular alien of choice. Little Green Men, right? Little Martians. Well, then that changed to the greys. I don't know if people reported that they were green. I think that in TV, they reported that they were green, that Martians were supposed to be green. And I think, well, there's actually an entity that's reported quite often, and it's uh, smaller than a gray, shorter and more stout, and it's blue. And some Zaxxon. People, it looks like a gnome. Oh, okay. It looks gnomish or smurf-like even. Smurf-like okay. might be closer, uh, but very bulky. Very square, and uh, it's reported all the time, but then we can go all the way back into history, back to India, and we see that they had extraterrestrials come that were blue-skinned, mm. and they were um, Vishnu, I believe. I mean, that's going to... I'm surprised I've heard more people talk about blue-skinned aliens, uh, especially we had Avatar a few years ago. Oh, yeah. Well, see, but the blues that we have the information from were... Not they were before that. Yeah, the avatars were blue, and uh, but they were more uh, svelte <laughs> and and <laughs> slender. <laughs> and uh, yes, yes, these other ones are very uh, like seven dwarf like and very bulky and and misshapen, and they don't seem like an easy moving entity. So, but. Uh, They've been reported over and over again. It's not that's not an uncommon one in the industry, but in on TV, maybe in a few years, you'll be hearing about them. About the blue aliens, interesting. About the blues, yeah, and probably a lot more hybrids because mm. I mean, people like uh, Dr. David Jacobs. Are you familiar with him? Oh, of course, yeah. Well, he believes that the hybrids are being integrated into society and that they are positioning themselves and that they're at multiple levels of integration, that some Mm. hybrids connect very well socially while others appear quite dysfunctional, but they could be working in like a low-level position such as a, uh, I believe the analogy or the position he used was like an innkeeper, like where you check somebody in on on the night shift where you'd have very little interaction but just enough for them to learn and counts of a one school teacher from Texas said that uh, she was brought aboard a craft to work with hybrids she said that they were like teenagers and she was teaching them basically how to 
fit in with teenagers and I guess who better than a high school teacher but they were in the cafeteria she had to correct how they held the tray silverware selected food and so forth they were inept in that area so but advanced in areas of telepathic communication and exhibited other psychic abilities is what she recalled what was the school again it was a school teacher who had claimed to, to be abducted many times. Okay. And, and she was she, taken to meet these kids at a, like it was like a classroom setting? Yeah, they did like a classroom setting. And she doesn't know if it was on a craft or in a facility. Is all, okay. But it was a fake classroom setting, a vignette, uh, uh, for her to be able to teach in and to, uh, to show them how to be teenagers. How to be kids. Which would make actually perfect sense if you're going to do hybrids. Uh, well, that would be one uh, reason is to integrate them into society once you get them to look just like us but with right. a little bit of them which uh, that's kind of bizarre though uh, why would they go through the hybrid process if they're going to make them look identical to humans why not just have humans brainwash them and make them do their bidding well i think that um the hybrids uh, well the alien the grays this is the thing um humans you know light embodied entities are said to be eternal. We to, we're supposed to have a soul, and that we'll go on or come back. <laughs> and um, who would want to do that? Oh, this planet's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, you know the planet's awesome. It's some of the people. I don't know. <laughs> That's true too. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but the Greys they live to be nine hundred eleven up to nine hundred to eleven hundred years old, and then they die. So perhaps they want that eternal quest you know maybe that's why they want to become hybrids with us for that particular reason so they want to like have a a doorway into heaven basically they want to well no i didn't say heaven i said that (laughs) or to a soul that goes into heaven a soul wherever the afterlife is well the afterlife can take a while to get to apparently i understand that you have to reach a certain human attainment to surpass becoming embodied again we're incarnate or discarnate entities or we're human entities and hue is an ancient word for a measurement of light we still use it today to measure light man is for manifestation which is to come into the physical a human is a light embodied entity uh, light is a continuous wave that has the ability to manifest based on the physics of its environment. Humans are highly adaptable in body and supposedly, uh, call it a soul, call it your soul mind, call it your consciousness, call it the consciousness expression of the ultimate source. I'm not sure what it is. I do know that there is something. And perhaps we ask ourselves, what is it? that we can offer these other races that they come to us humans who are still barbaric. (laughs) That's what we have is our very essence of our being. And that is our, our soul, that eternal part of us. So that's what they're lacking. That's a great theory. It is a theory. I hope one day we actually discover what the actual truth is of what they're doing with the hybridization. Uh, Lori, uh, it's been awesome having you here for this hour. Uh, can you tell the audience listening in uh, your website addresses and how to find you on social media or anywhere to promote your, your work? Right. Yes, thank you. I mean, I'll be speaking on the 
contactee phenomena and mm-hmm. on the 15th of March for San Jose MUFON. And then the uh, cool. 27th and 28th of March is uh, UFO Con San Jose 2015. I'm on the abduction panel there. And then free of charge to anyone who attends Sunday morning, I'll be facilitating the experiencers group. This is an opportunity in a non-judgmental forum for people to come and express their truth and have the ability to have people listen with compassion and understanding and hopefully be able to provide them some insight and direction to the experiences that they had. So we're I'm very much looking forward to that. And in the meantime, you can check my website out at uh, TrueYouHypnotherapy.com. You can see me on Facebook. You can follow me at Twitter at Lori's True You. Very cool. Lori, thank you so much for being here. And hopefully we can have you back on real soon. It was a blast having you on. Really was. Thank you. It was really fun. Thanks for having me. It was really my pleasure. Guys, stick around. We're going to be back after the break with Scott Allen Roberts here on Skywatchers Radio. You're tuned in to the Dark Matter Radio Network. We'll be Professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions, providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology, preventative maintenance and networking support, hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. Hi, this is Solaris Blue Raven with Hyperspace on the Dark Matter Radio Network. Please tune in on Tuesdays for an intriguing show pertaining to covert technology, UFOs, paranormal, mysticism, and spirituality. This is James Swagger, host of Capricorn Radio. I'm also an author, engineer, and researcher. Capricorn Radio covers alternative history, alternative science, philosophy, and truth-oriented discussions. We are proud to be on the Dark Matter Radio Network live at 8 p.m. Saturdays, Eastern Standard Time. You can catch extra info on darkmatterradio.net, jameswagger.com for yours truly, CapricornMembers.com for the archives. Don't forget, truth is not democratic. Truth is truth.
Hello, I'm Bruce Pearson, documentary producer, investigator, and co-host of Unknown Origins Radio, which airs each Thursday evening from 8 till 10 p.m. Eastern Time right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network. Please join me and my colleague Mark Johnson for two hours of thought-provoking interviews discussing some of today's most intriguing subjects with researchers, authors, and eyewitnesses on a range of topics. So whether you're a newcomer to the community of exploration of the unexplained or a seasoned veteran and investigator, I'm sure you will find interesting content and concepts on Unknown Origins Radio right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network. And I encourage you to check out the entire lineup of unique programming here on the network. There's truly something for everyone. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to sharing our fascinating guests and their topics on Unknown Origins Radio, Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern here on the Dark Matter Radio Network. The George Rodriguez Show. Who? I said the George Rodriguez Show. You don't know George Rodriguez? Wasn't he the guy that filled in for Neil Rogers? Yes, that George Rodriguez. What's he like? Oh, he's a short little Cuban fella. Kind of funny looking. Well, when's he on? 12 to 3, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on SoFloRadio.com and SoFloRadio.net. The George Rodriguez Show is much more than adequate. Hello, my name is Howard Hughes, and I'm in London, and I've been proud to bear this name all my life. Over here in the UK, I'm known as a broadcast journalist. I've been involved in some of the big stories of our time. The fall of the Berlin Wall. The death of Princess Diana. I told London about that. And on the first and second anniversaries of 9-11, I was there at Ground Zero, speaking to the people who were directly involved and those experiences I will never forget. So news is my thing. But my great love is my show, the one that I produce, The Unexplained. Over the years on this show, I've spoken to people like the late Al Bielik from the Philadelphia Experiment, Edgar Mitchell, the amazing Apollo astronaut, Dr. Stephen Greer, David Icke, and Uri Geller. People like Richard C. Hoagland have become personal friends over the years. I met him in London. So you can see that these sort of topics are what I like to discuss. Please join me on my show from London, The Unexplained, Monday nights on the Dark Matter Network. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com
All right, everybody, we are back on Skywatchers Radio. And the sounds you're listening to right there, that's from Space Boy. It's called Spectre. Not to be confused with the James Bond movie coming out called Spectre, but very cool title, very good song. Space Boy, shout out to Spoilers. Everybody knows, man. Everybody knows that's the uh, the name of the James Bond movie. It's not a secret. Other guy. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I saw Kingsman. Really oh, yeah. How was that? How was Kingsman? Re- it was really good. Better than Jupiter's Ascending. Well, that's not saying much, I don't think. But uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't want to get into that movie. Jeez, that, that's a terrible film. Uh, but you know what's not terrible and what's really, really exciting? What? The guest we're going to have on right now, Mr. Scott Allen Roberts, is joining us right now. Now, Scott Allen Roberts is a designer, illustrator, and writer of fiction and nonfiction. Two of my favorite topics in books, fiction and nonfiction. Scott Allen Roberts has not been on a show with me in years, man, and it just bugs me because he's a great guest and love having this man on the show. Scott Allen Roberts, welcome to Skywatchers Radio, my friend. How are you doing tonight? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing a lot better now that you're here, sir. (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you. You know, we were reminiscing uh, here, uh, uh, you know, before the uh, the show started during the break, uh, about the last time we had you on one of my shows. And, man, the time flies, doesn't it? 2011, 12, around there, that's when uh, we last spoke on, uh, on a radio show? It's it's crazy. I, as I was saying to you, I, I start looking through things and a bunch of the things I've been doing over the last few years. And you look at something and you go, I got to get to that, or when did that? That was just the other day or the other week, and then you realize, you know, it was four years ago. Oh, man. Sometimes the time goes so fast that you don't realize that uh, how fast it's gone by. You know, it's funny because I I remember being a kid and just sitting there and being like, man, in the year 2000, I'm going to be in my 20s. It's going to be so cool. And now I'm in my late 30s, and it's 2015. I'm like, Jesus, this is not good. Oh, I I, I, I'm getting you a walker. I already had one of those after my car accident in 2009, but thank you very much for bringing back those dark memories, other guy. I got to tell you, I, I grew up uh, as a, pro- a product of the late 60s and the early to mid-70s, graduated high school in 78 that same year as if you remember that 70s show when that was on? Yes. Uh, that was the that year show. I graduated high school. And uh, so I'm 54 years old now, and I remember growing up on black and white TV. We had a 13-inch black and white TV set and four channels. And that was it. There was no cable TV. There was no cable. There was no uh, uh, no cell phones. No, we had a rotary phone for uh, part of the time that I was growing up. And uh, so wow. now it's, it's amazing to me. I'm not elderly by any means. So long ago. <laughs> you know, I, I, we, we just had, uh, we had another baby. You know, I've got a baby that's now 11 weeks old. I mean, I'm still no kid. Y- young enough to be having kids. You know, what the hell happened to me there? See, yeah. so. <laughs> no, but see, you know, people like you and Art Bell are, are heroes to me for this, and for many other reasons, by the way. Uh, but the fact that you're having kids at an older age, uh, it tells me that, hey, there's still time for me to have kids, because I haven't had any kids. Of course, I haven't really wanted the you know to have any kids so i've so I stayed away from that situation uh from rising up if you know what i mean uh, uh so yes. 
I've purposely avoided, uh, you know, long-term relationships because I don't want to have family or kids right now uh, for other reasons, many different personal reasons. Uh, but, you know, maybe when I'm in my 50s or something like that, I might consider having kids. And that's a great age, I think, to have kids also because, yeah, you're getting older, but I think you get to enjoy kids a little bit more, especially when you're retired. You can go and hang out with them playing baseball and whatnot. Uh, you know, there's a little bit of a different life, I think, that you, you experience as a father when you're a little bit older than if you were a lot younger and you really can't enjoy your kids because you're working all the time. Well, I, I can tell you what, I can sum it up in, uh, you almost don't want to cite Bill Cosby's comedy anymore uh, these days, but, <laughs> but I remember... Especially not I, if it involves pudding pop. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> when I was a younger man, I remember he was talking about parenthood, and one of his bits was, he says, when you are a parent, you know, he starts out like that, and he said, he said, you are no longer, and you have children, you no longer are concerned with justice you're concerned with what makes quiet and uh and he's very True. right on that for yeah. me at all i can tell you is being a, a dad at age 54 and my my wife's about 20 years younger than i am so she's still you know in her prime i haven't get you know i have six kids now all together i've got older ones from a previous marriage and i got my three with my my wife now and we just had now you know we've got the 11 week old and and, and I how much sleep when, are you actually getting uh, what, what, what was that word? How much sleep <laughs> are you actually getting? Sleep. Ah, I've heard of it's that word. It's a foreign word. word. Yeah, it's a foreign word. It's a foreign <laughs> word. But, but, it's a four-letter uh, word, sleep. What's interesting is when we found out, you know, I thought she was going to be able to start coming on all these trips with me and doing this stuff because our uh, we've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and my 14-year-old lives with her from my previous marriage, and so... Uh, we had the three-year-old, who at the time was two last year, and I'm thinking, you know, Rainy, you can start traveling with me. You can start coming to Egypt. You can start doing these trips with us and going places and doing more stuff. And lo and behold, uh, uh, I was gone in Egypt for a month, and I came back last March, and not a week later, she puts a pregnancy strip in front of my face and says, what does that look like to you? And I said... You mean that big blue plus sign? <laughs> and I, I literally sat with my face in my hand for about a day and a half going, oh, I can't believe this is happening. How did this happen? You know, the typical guy line, how did you let this I'm happen? Sorry, if you don't yeah, know yeah. how it happened, there's a problem. Well, I think well, I, I figured, it, figured out it out now. at this point. Yeah, I would say. <laughs> So uh, they, you had what you dropped off uh, a little. That's what it was. Know. It was the Nephilim. That's there, what it was. there it is. It was. Uh, yeah, you know, she could have used that. She said, well, you know, uh, a watcher descended and said, "Lo, no," but uh, it didn't happen that way. So now I've got it figured out, and we fixed the problem. So that's good. Um, that shouldn't be happening. <laughs> Ouch. So uh, and it wasn't all that bad. You know, I actually had it done, and I went out and raked leaves for about an hour, and um, afterwards I went, oh, I How much did you cry while go. you were raking the leaves? I, I said, I think I should go lay down. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I had my dog fixed. Uh, not to cut you off, but I had my dog fixed a few years ago, and that was the saddest ride back home. Not to the hospital. He was happy on the way there because he didn't know what was going on. He was like, oh, man, this is exciting. We're out of the road, and we're I'm not in, in the, the house. I'm in the car. I'm jonesing. And woof, woof. He was happy as it could be. But the ride home, Scott, let me tell you, uh, the, the faces he made at me were more like, uh, you traitor, you bastard, you backstabber, what have you done to me? I hate your guts. I'm going to kill you, you when you're in the middle of sleeping, kind of. Yes. Thing. 
instantly I found urine all over my shoes. He was biting on my shoes. I mean, this dog had it out for me for months. Did did he get one of those collars too? He did. All right. It wasn't a pleasant. It wasn't a pleasant time. It was not pleasant at all. Oh yeah, I feel bad. What was the old Far Side cartoon where it shows uh, the woman pulling out of her driveway in her car and the little dogs talking out the window to the neighbor dog? And he's saying, like, ha, 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 I'm going for a ride. And after that, she's going to take me to get tutored. So, <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Neutered. Now, last time we talked, of course, you had the book, the Nephilim, uh, Nephilim book. Yes. Uh, and that was, uh, I still have that book, and I've gone through it like three times, by the way. Great book. Oh, uh, Really, really good read. But, you know, have what have you uh, done since that book? Have you written anything else that uh, you might want to share with the audience here? I have. Uh, let's see. I did a follow-up to that book. That yes. book came, uh, the the uh, well first was the of course the rise and fall of the Nephilim, right. and that came out uh, February of 2012. And then uh, the next year, I came out with uh, the secret history of the reptilians, and it was subtitled uh, the pervasive presence of the serpent throughout human history, religion, and alien mythos. And uh, so it wasn't a, a big book about. And now let's identify the reptilian race here on the planet. Um, I got into some of that, and as I was writing it, my my head really went away from. I was really struggling with it. It was a dog of a book for me. It was not a topic I enjoyed all that much, but one my publisher asked me about, and so I wanted to keep uh, uh, trying to to research this out. And the more I kept running into the the stuff about the reptilians, I kept running into the same stories over and over again. And yet nobody seemed to have any kind of source material. And I I did a, when I was actually writing one chapter, I paused, I wrote in the book. I said, I'm going to go to my computer now and put in a word search. And I put in, you know, reptilian aliens. And I came back with like 1.6 million references. And uh, I said... And I typed in the book. I said, we've got all these references. And I took the top ten, and I listed what they were all saying, uh, just in mini-paragraph form. And almost all of those top ten sites had the same story being told by a different person with only slightly different verbiage in places, but they were quoting the same story. They all plagiarized it from somewhere. I think right. only God knows where the original story came from. And... Uh, and I said, it's interesting to me that all these accounts are out there, but there's no source material. And I started getting a little disillusioned with trying to find mm. source material. So I, I said, you know what I think I'm starting to see here is more of a psychological need on people's parts to believe in this kind of yes. stuff. And I, I, I went to great pains to say in the book, I don't dismiss the possibility that the reptilian race exists. And there are some people who are very good at writing about this stuff. I said, for me, I said, let's focus on the mythology. Where did it come from? Why is it here? What are the ancient mythologies? That, uh, and let's talk about that. And then let's talk about why, why people need this in their lives. And I really looked at it as a, there's almost a religion building around it. Even though, you know, you can't say, I go to the Church of Reptile. You know, it's not anything <laughs> like that. It's not in that right. orthodox sense that we want to put it together. Well, but, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. They do have the Church of Set. You know, as you know, oh, I'm sure. Snake, yeah, yeah. right. The Egyptian Egypt. set, right, right. Set, you know, versus uh, you know, Horus. Uh, right, right, right. right. Uh, and but, there's still cults, and there are still, still. But was was set looked at? That. Hold on, but was set looked upon as a reptilian? Because I don't remember if he was. Yes, yes, it was. 
he was, and and the approach okay. I was taking with all those, and what I mean by establishing religion is not so much that there weren't, and I covered there are a lot of ancient religions that right. all, almost every ancient culture, every ancient religion had some kind of serpentine aspect to it, right? Uh, in one form or another, either directly face on or you know in a sideways angle. Uh, you could look at uh, you know obviously in well, Judea, Adam and Eve, Adam and you know, Eve, the serpent you? in the garden, and so right. on. And uh, uh, but then you've got like uh, uh, Krishna who dispensed the the forbidden knowledge of the gods from the underneath the banyan tree while sitting on a coiled serpent. You've got Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent god of the Mayans. You've got all these different references. Uh, that are, well, look at the uh, Chinese dragon uh, was a reference. Without that being a religion built around the dragon, that was just part of their spirituality. And uh, you have the Chinese dragon that was the bringer of fertility and happiness. Whereas in like Christianity and Judaism, uh, that uh, that serpent character was the representation of evil in the fall, and uh, then you but then you've got the Gnostics who might tell you, well, no, he wasn't all that bad. It's we've got the story mixed up, and uh, so these were some interesting things I started studying in that book, and I, I really, really kind of concluded the book. I'll tell you this: I had some people write reviews on the book that were very hostile, and and very unhappy with me. This is not the book I bought. It's a waste of paper. It's because you know it didn't talk about. He didn't even say where the reptilians came from, you know. And I said, why? Well, do if you I had the answers that? to that, you know, he'd be sitting on gold right now. Yeah, nothing new about this book. And uh, but it, the way I I approach and I justify the way I wrote it is to say I took that different angle I wanted to explore why we need this not whether or not it's true there's a lot of people out there that write about that I wanted to find out why we need it so badly why if we if it's not at our fingertips why do we go looking for something so what's the draw and what's the need and uh, I was equating our current day mythos about reptilians to our uh, our ancient uh, uh, mythological stories, tales of uh, of the serpent interacting with humans, and so uh, it was an interesting it was an interesting foray for me. When I was done with that book, I was like, "Phew!" You know, it was it was one of those that it, it, when you write a book, it's it's more about. I say it's saying I wrote a book is a whole hell of a lot more fun than saying I'm in the middle of writing a book, right? Uh, and it's it's so much more daunting. It's 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 being done is the it's like wow, whew, I am done. All you do until you get the book deal is go, man, I want to write a book. I want to write a book. I want to write a book. And then when you get the book deal, you're like, yeah, I got to sit down and write this. And uh, you know, it's not that I hadn't thought about these things for many years and written down many things, but that sounds uh, like me when I'm going to read a book and I'm going to go buy it. I'm like, I'm going to buy the book. It's going to be a great book. Then I get the book and it's really really big. Oh, and I'm dude. Like, I, Got to read all that. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, you know, it was kind of like, it was, it was, I wouldn't even go there. Um, well, this, this led into then the next book that I did came out uh, late 2013. And uh, I wrote this with a good friend of mine, Dr. John Ward, uh, who's a British archaeologist, uh, lives and works in Luxor, Egypt. And he and his wife have the big site of Gebel el Silsila. As a matter of fact, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be flying over there just to spend some time over working with them on their site. And it's a big quarry site, uh, sandstone quarries, and it really dates back from the Greco-Roman times all the way back through the dynastic period in Egypt. 
into the epipaleolithic times where you've got, uh, you know, we, we were sitting out there finding on, on this site, just and the site's about 20 miles square, and uh, we're hiking all over, and, and it's you're right on the Nile, and when you're on the west bank of the Nile of this quarry site, you just start walking west, you're in the desert. And so uh, the Sahara is right there. And so we're, we're out just combing this site and going up and down. We're finding old uh, rock art and, and uh, flint nappings with a broken flint uh, uh, weapon sitting right there on a hilltop, a rocky, dusty, sandy hilltop. And that's been there for probably 17,000 years. And uh, sitting on a, a Just a, a totally bo- uncovered, just sitting there. Just sitting there because there's nothing to cover it up. The sands will blow in. Uh, I'm sure there were times where they were covered with sand, but then they blow off. It rains. You get you get sandstorms. It's right on the Nile, but it's on this hill, and it, it felt it feels when you got to the top of this particular section of their site, where you're on like cobblestones, is what it felt like. It looked like it was all flattened, um, you know, curved curved flattened uh, topped uh, cobblestones. But you're walking, wow. and and it's all it's all uh, and you, you'd approach. Like little circles about eight feet in diameter of raised stone where this is where they would put probably sticks in the ground and a skin over the top or some kind of covering over that. And they had these little huts and there were these little villages like this all over these rock tops. And you'd find the flint nappings and old tools and things. It's just places people don't go. You're out in the middle of godforsaken nowhere. And uh, so it was very exciting, and uh, they've had some very exciting finds over there. So uh, I'm going to be going over in a couple of weeks, uh, mid-March, to join them for a couple of weeks over there. That's a whole book in itself right there. Uh, it's fun. It's fun stuff. <laughs> and uh, so John and I wrote The Exodus Reality, mm-hmm. uh, and that book came out late uh, October of 2013, and it was our two different views on who the historical Moses might have been and the, the historical Exodus, which is a, a great a deviation from the other things I'd been writing. No kidding, but, yeah. <laughs> but Moses was somebody, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I was in uh, Bible school, then I went on to Bible college, and then I went to theological seminary in the early 80s, and uh, I was a youth pastor for a while. And uh, for a while, I mean, on and off during my career for about 10 more years after that. But um, I and I started questioning a lot of things back then. But one thing that always stuck with me was the character of Moses. Um, I don't know what drew me to him and why I was so intrigued with him as a kid. But when I was, uh, I think it was fourteen years old, I drew this little magic marker. Think of design markers, uh, design markers, and the hundreds of spreads of colors. And I, I got a set of those, and I drew a comic book of Moses and the Ten Commandments and stuff like that. You know, while most 14-year-olds were out getting in trouble, I was home drawing pictures of Moses. Yeah, and, it's not uh, very uh, normal behavior. No, <laughs> it wasn't. But I was also a Star Trek fan, so that... That explains it. Nerddom uh, and, to, and geekdom. I failed to see the connection there, Moses and Star Trek, but okay. Well, there, there really wasn't <laughs> one, other than it made me both a nerd and a geek... So time, uh, yes. um, that was my childhood. And, uh, oh, I was a kid that would, I'd get my friends, I had really close friends that were very interested in the same stuff. We used to have Super 8 movie cameras. And, uh, I mean, it's back film cameras. And we would do special effects. We would do stop motion animation with spaceships and stuff like that. And that's the stuff I did in my 13, 14, 15-year-old uh, span of life there. 
And uh, But Moses was somebody, uh, I drew that comic book, and the church I was attending liked it so much, and we were, we were a poor family, uh, they gave me a scholarship to go to the high school there. And so I went to the high school, and that got me into the college and the seminary. That's what really launched all of that. And I wrote papers in seminary on Moses and the, uh, the educational system of the 18th dynasty. I had to peg where I believed Moses fit in. So the theories on this started way back then. And when John and I met several years back now, we, one of the first questions I asked him when we started getting into serious discussions was, hey, you are an Egyptologist, you're an archaeologist in, in Egypt, I said, I got to ask you, what's your take on Moses? And he says, Oh, he says, it's funny you should ask me that, Scotty. And, uh, and, and he had a theory of his own that was very different from mine. And, uh, we have a friendly, uh, uh, ongoing debate about it. But, uh, our, our two different theories are really in the same, it's in the middle 18th dynasty, about 80 years apart within the same royal house, just two dramatically different characters. And uh, so my first time I went over to Egypt was uh, two years ago, and I went over with John, and we went for a month, and we did this research expedition going to all these places. We went out to the Sinai Desert, and, uh, you know, you've, you've got the, the, the picture of the, the Mount Sinai in your head, uh, the traditional site, St. Catharines, way out on the east side of the Sinai Peninsula. But there's another mountain, uh, Serebet al-Khadim, which is about halfway down the Red Sea on the east side, on the Sinai side, and in about 50 miles. And there's this little plateau mountain in this rough area. We were the guests of Sheikh Salim Barakat, who put us up in these Bedouin tents overnight, and uh, we climbed the mountain the next day. And at the top of that mountain is the ancient ruins of the Temple of Hathor. And uh, Hathor was the calf goddess. Uh, Think of the golden calf with the Israelites, and you get a pretty good picture. And uh, uh, that cave is up there, and 1,500 years' worth of pharaohs built their own little chambers off of the front of this cave. And so there's this, there's this long string of chambers all the way up to Ramesses VI. And so we were up there, and it's all ruins now, of course, and there were, uh, it was quiet. There was nothing there. You're out in the middle of the Sinai Desert on a mountaintop, and you said, this I believe, is where this happened. There's too much evidence for it. And if Moses was who we both think he was, only different characters, he was, both of us have label guys that were grand viziers. My guy, Senenmut, had had 92 royal titles conferred on him. And all the details I won't go into, but suffice it to say, if Moses was indeed a prince of Egypt, this is what uh, Senenmut was a man born to commoners, as all the Egyptians say about him. Uh, he was uh, raised to power by Hatshepsut, the female queen who became the, fer- the female pharaoh. And uh, he, he was there for, for about 40 years, and he just disappeared off the scene. Right about the same time as the biblical chronology places Moses. And so it's very interesting when you start digging into all this. But this is the guy with all of this... Ah, royal training, royal upbringing. He was, oh, he was given the title of the the hereditary crown prince of Egypt. And this guy was Pharaoh in the absence of Pharaoh while he was the grand vizier during his first 40 years of life. And, uh, and then, of course, he disappears. But what you've got to consider is when you go up to that mountaintop and you see these places, you go, this, these are places where this guy was. He was here. 
Um, uh, we go down to Gebelel Silsila, John and Maria's site. He, there, his shrine is there. Um, there's all these different things, and, and everything about him was smashed and ruined after a certain period in time. And, uh, but you keep finding these references of him coming up. And uh, so he was very interesting. And he was born during the reigns of Tutmosis I, Tutmosis II, Tutmosis III, Hatshepsut, all of these people. And so uh, that's what John and I studied on a research trip. That's what, that's what that book was about. And uh, that came out a little over a year ago. And, why do you uh, think? Uh, why do you think history and, and the church has changed uh, the historical Moses the way they have? Um, uh, it changed him in in what respect? How do you mean? Well, changed uh, the the name, uh, for example, because his name wasn't Moses. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I think that there are the way John and I approach it is that in this book is that uh, there are events that become legend. And legends that become mythology. And I think the story of Moses, it's either one of two things. It's exactly as the Bible says it, which is actually pretty vague. It doesn't even tell you right. who the pharaohs are. Right. Um, doesn't give you any specific information historically. It, well, actually, I'm, I'm, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. In the Old Testament, as opposed to the New Testament, it does go into description of the timeline and, you know, who the pharaoh was at the time. Well, in, in the actual Bible itself, the Old Testament, it doesn't mention anything about the pharaohs. You can get into uh, the mikvah, the mishnah, the, all the traditional writings of the Jews. You're going to find traditional stories. Uh, there's one that talks about Moses was a great general under a pharaoh, and they give his name, and we're not quite sure which pharaoh he aligns with. But he went down to, under the command of this pharaoh, to quell a rebellion down in Sudan. And he goes down there, Kush, so what it was called back then. And he, he subdues the rebellion, beheads the king. Uh, the, the queen is very pissed off at him, of course. And he uh, takes the throne for himself. And then Pharaoh sends a message back saying, uh -uh, it's mine. I, you get your butt back up to Egypt. And so he abdicates the throne. And then, according to Jewish legend, uh, Moses also, when he flees Egypt after murdering the Egyptian, we always hear he goes to the Sinai Desert, to Mount Sinai, you know, and he, right. to Midian. But uh, the, the, the mikvah is going to tell you, Jewish traditional stories are going to tell you that, no, first he went south to Cush, and he married the Cushite princess, and then several years later went out to the Sinai, and then came back to Egypt. And so the, there's interesting tales that are there. The Bible itself is just void of any kind of pharaonic name. And that's why there is such a, uh, um, the, about the only thing, the, the only pharaoh that's mentioned in the Exodus account is Ramesses. But, right. and so people mistakenly plug Ramesses as, the, if you just saw the, the recent Ridley Scott movie, uh, Exodus, um, he again followed the Ramesses theory. If you look at the old Charlton Heston movie, Ewell Brenner, Ramses II, Ramses was always it because it's only because of one little verse in the book of Exodus that says, the children of Israel, Israel, while they were slaves, built the treasure cities of Python and Ramses. And, of mm -hmm. course, Ramses the Great built those cities. And so they said, oh, well, there's our hinge pin. The Israelites were slaves under Ramses II because he built those cities. The problem with that is, it's like asking the question, um, who built New York City? 
And you could say the Dutch. Well, no, they didn't. The Dutch built New Amsterdam. Uh, it was the English who came in and built New York City on top of or expanded uh, New Amsterdam. Same thing happened with the Israelites. When that scripture was rewritten, if Moses is truly the author of the book of Exodus, um, he would have penned that around 1400 B.C., thereabouts. But it wasn't until just, just before 400 B.C., that after the Babylonian captivity that all the, the 72 rabbis came and got the permission of Ptolemy II to go to the Library of Alexandria to recompile the scriptures. And they went there for two purposes, to bolster the faithful of Israel and to reestablish the eradicated history of Israel. And so they wanted to go through all the documents that were there at the Library of Alexandria. And they recompiled basically the Old Testament we have today. They wrote the Greek version, the Septuagint. And that Septuagint is really what we have now as the Old Testament. But I think this is where they were missing information. By this time, a thousand years after the fact, they may not have had a handle on all the Pharaoh's names. Right. Moses never put them in. Uh, they certainly didn't know where Mount Sinai was. This is very clear in Israelite history. They, during the time of David, they couldn't remember where Mount Sinai was. Also, uh, uh, Scotty, after yeah. a thousand years have gone by, I mean, how much of the story could be even considered legitimate? Uh, you know how humans embellish stories from one hand to the right. other, one year to the next? Well, that's the big question that John and I pursued, because now the, the, the Israelites were meticulous on their oral tradition, and they learned these stories and passed them down and passed them down. Same thing you get if you go into a synagogue today, uh, not, knowing, not, not citing any particular... Uh, um, um, ceremony or anything like that, but th these are all oral traditions passed down for generations. And so they had this when they returned from Babylon. This is why they went to the Library of Alexandria, the Smithsonian Institute, the Library of Congress, if you will, of its day. And they wanted to look up all this old information, and they spent years writing the Septuagint, recompiling the Hebrew Scriptures. And uh, what's very interesting when they did this, I was, it was, I kind of got off the the point, but uh, the point I was making with the Library of Alexandria was when you look at at Ramesses, the treasure cities of Python and Ramesses being built by the children of Israel in the Book of Exodus. Well, uh, and I brought up that example of New Amsterdam and New York and the Dutch and so on. What they were writing in 400 was what they knew. They knew right. that, that that the Hebrews built the treasure cities of Python and Ramses. Well, those were the current name places of those for the last 800-plus years, Python and Ramses. But what they, what they don't write in there is that Python and Ramses were built on top of Avaris, which was a city built 250 to, six to 500 years earlier. That's the city that was built by the Hebrews or by the children of Israel. All Ramses did was he rebuilt those cities and turned them into his treasure cities, which is what he did with everything. And one of the key historical points, without getting into it too deep, but do you remember after the Exodus, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and then they come into the Promised Land. Moses dies, of course, and Joshua takes over their first thing. They, the, they sack the, the city of Jericho. And the old stories, they blew the great trump and the walls came tumbling down. And uh, um, now what's very interesting is, is and I don't know the, the Aramaic name of it, or, uh, 
uh, the tell in the middle of current day Jericho is the old city. And there's been years and years of excavation work done on this, where they're finding that the walls did indeed tumble down. And, of course, you know, they're trying to find the scientific reason for this. And what's interesting is that that tell dates back to right around 1400 B.C. when it was ruined. And it was never dwelt in again for 800 years. Wow. Now, Ramesses reigned in the 1200s, 200 years after that event. So if the children of Israel were having the exodus under Ramses, how did they sack the city of Jericho 200 years earlier after the exodus? So these are the points of history we start to look at in this book. And that's just one of them. But we look at all different kinds of things, and there's so many things to establish these characters. And the fact that, yeah, there's not a lot of history out there in Egypt. There's, there's very few pharaohs. There were no pharaohs, okay, who put inscriptions on their temple walls that said, and my slave people kicked my right. ass last month. <laughs> it's not there. Uh, right. So you're not going to find that. But what you're going to find are trace little bits and pieces of evidence from all over the place. That, that creates a, a very viable picture. Now, after writing this book, what, what are your thoughts on the movie Exodus that came out with Christian Bale this past year? You know, um, I liked it. There were elements of it I liked and elements I didn't like. I, I'm not one of those rampant, oh, my God, don't go watch it. I can't believe he's got Moses talking to a kid. <laughs> you know, I, re- I, I wanted to see stuff. the Michael Bay edition. That would have been better, I think. Oh, the Michael Bay edition would have been very cool. <laughs> Uh, Christian Bale would have been blowing something up. You just know that yeah. was going to happen. I, th- I thought Christian Bale played a pretty good Moses. Because uh, uh, now, for for me, when I heard that uh, Ridley Scott was just doing really a, a very updated version of the, the Ten Commandments, from the, it was his remake of the Ten Commandments. Right. And uh, it's still Ramesses. And, and I remember getting irate because there is not... I will put the challenge out there and probably probably not be answered, but probably I don't not, think no. there is an Egyptologist worth his salt today that can hold to a Ramesian theory of the Exodus. It's just too damn late in history, and there's no archaeological evidence at all. You want absence of evidence for, for an Exodus? Go look at the Ramesid period. But uh, this is, he uses Ramses again, Ramses II. And I thought Joel... Uh, whatever his last name is, I can't remember, who played Ramses, did a phenomenal job of playing Ramses. You've really got to get into the mindset of the characters. Um, so he did a great job. I thought Christian Bale did a great job. Even though they were both white guys and Brits, they did a great job. I was going to ask you that, and I wanted to, I wanted to present that as a gentle question. Sure. Uh, what do you think of the whitewashing of having Moses played by a British white dude? You know, uh, there's a part of me that says, it's okay, it's acting, you know, and to hell, you know. Right. I, I, uh, I played Joseph the Carpenter in a Sunday school pageant when I was a kid. I'm not Jewish. But uh, I still played him. Uh, very different, of course. Uh, <laughs> Christian Bale, I think, did an excellent job. It's okay. I don't really... It doesn't bother me that you've got actors portraying people. You know, we've got, we've got actors portraying aliens. We've got Mexicans portraying Palestinians. We've got, uh, you, know, you know, Brits portraying, portraying rednecks from the Deep South. So, you know, it, uh, Walking Dead, you know, Rick, the lead character, he's right. a Brit. The actor's a yeah, Brit. Yeah, he's British. Yeah, uh, some people. And you you would never know that by you watching. You never show. know it. 
Amazing actor. And the governor. The governor was British, too. Yeah, also. Uh, So, anyway, all that to say is that I think I don't have as big a problem seeing white actors playing these parts. It it doesn't matter. It's a a job. It's an actor. It's entertainment. Right. Uh, And also, if you want realism like that, uh, they're going to have to speak in Hebrew also, not English. Well, that's right. Well, I thought Mel Gibson actually did a pretty good job with his Jesus of Nazareth in certain aspects. He did that in the Aramaic uh, and things like that. Uh, But uh, with... I guess if I had my my dream chance of directing a big major motion picture about Moses, which will probably not get done now for another fifty years, uh, thanks Ridley Scott. But uh, <laughs> I, I think probably a lot the way Hollywood is going, I think it'll be a lot sooner than that. It honestly. probably will be. I yeah. would love to see characters like there was a character that I thought would play a fantastic Moses. He's an Israeli actor, and we've all seen him. If you saw the the Mummy movies. Um, with uh, um, oh. Emotep? Uh, yeah, no, yeah. not not him. The guy yeah, with the beard. Played, the guy with the with the black robes and the black turban, the tattoos. You know, the the defenders of uh, the the whatever. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy uh, had the beard. He was also in Deuce Bigelow, male gigolo. Yeah, he's he that was. guy is is an Israeli actor. I thought he could have played a marvelous Moses. He's a fantastic actor. I think you could have found characters. Um, uh, to do that, but I don't think it's necessary. But I think it it would be kind of cool to do that sometime. And of it course, definitely adds a little bit of authentic flavor to the movie. I mean, it does add that authentic authenticity. It, it to does the, to the picture, or, or at least at least Damico get a tan. They're <laughs> so white, uh, you know, they're almost invisible. But uh, um, now here's my my thing is that I've got a specific character that I believe. I really believe, uh, I'd say 98%, a 2% shadow of a doubt, because none of us can be sure of this stuff until we're absolutely sure. But my candidate for Moses, uh, I believe, is the guy that was Moses. And the story is completely different, because it's okay. not set under Ramses, it's not set the same way. Uh, let me give you, is it hard to give you a quick highlight of why I, I have chosen this guy? Go ahead. Senenmut is the name of the man that I believe was Moses. Now, Senenmut, okay. Senenmut. And if you go to biblical history, um, look at the date when Solomon, the son of David, it says, dedicates, builds and dedicates the temple, the first temple in Jerusalem, Temple One. Now, there's dispute over mm-hmm. whether David and Solomon even existed, which I think is ridiculous. Uh, there, there are people doing so much work on this. These guys existed. Um, but whoever it was, let's say Solomon put aside the dispute that he existed. The king of Israel dedicated Temple One in Jerusalem. And there's, with the evidences that they have, there's a median date of about 966 BC, give or take only three or four years in either direction of the date of the founding of Temple One in Jerusalem. Now, if that is the date that we know historically, Temple One, 966 BC, give or take a year or two. Um, the Bible has a verse in 1 Kings 6.1 that says, and on the day that Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, it was the 480th year from the day of the Exodus. And so, now that's obviously a round figure. You know, it's probably like 479 in six months. Who knows right. what it was, but it's 480th year to the day of the Exodus. And so if you do your math from 966 B.C., add 480, you ended up with 
1446 B.C. is a date of the Exodus. Now, you look at that, and the first question you have to ask is, what is the efficacy of biblical history? Is the historicity of the Old Testament viable and reliable? And I hear people say, well, it can't be because it's a book of faith, and it's all, or people go even worse than that. They'll say, oh, it's just all garbage, it's all mythology. And I say, well, I disagree with you. You can have authentic uh, real, viable history contained in a book of faith doesn't mean you have to abide by the faith story or necessarily take on board the faith that's wrapped around that story. Right. The event itself, the events, the historical dates, and there's been, frankly, angels, so much biblical mm -hmm. archaeology over the last 150 years that almost every little detail of history in the Old Testament has either been verified or they are working on it, and there is so much information out there, it's unbelievable. And so when you say, when the Bible says, gives you that date, it's probably a fairly reliable date historically. You don't have to believe the faith story around it. Now, if you go to 1446 into Egypt, you get a bigger problem. You have to figure out who was on the throne. You think it'd be as easy as saying who was on the throne in 1446. Right. Well, there's there's actually five different chronologies of the Egyptian kings that that kind of you know, tick tick like look at like a slide rule or three dimensional slide rule and start taking all these five and shifting the dates all around back and forth. And this is what was going on because where the Oxford, the accepted Oxford chronology of the Egyptian kings might say. Uh, Amenhotep II was on the throne in 1446 B.C. But then there's another version of the chronology of the kings that will set that back 20 years or 8 years or 10 years. They were shifting all over the place because they weren't sure if this guy was a co-regent or this guy was, oh, his queen ruled for a year before he took the throne or whatever. And so you, you run into this, this chronology problem. So I went with just simply the accepted Oxford and I said, by this dating system, there was a guy on the throne in 1446 named Amenhotep II. He was a brash young ruler. He came to the throne at 18. Uh, and in the fifth year of his reign, after several military campaigns, um, the exodus takes place. Now, without getting into those t details, let's go backwards. Now, if Moses, according to the Bible, was, was around 80 years old at the time of the exodus... Right. If that was 1446, you can go back 80 years and get 1526 B.C. as the year of his birth. So now if he was born in 1526 or thereabouts, it would have been in the first year or two of the reign of Tutmosis I. Tutmosis I had a daughter. Her name was Hatshepsut, or Matakare was her name, and her, throne, her royal name was Hatshepsut. And she was called... She bore, there was, it was, guys, it was an actual title. She bore the title, the daughter, Pharaoh's daughter. Now, in the okay. book of Exodus, it says Pharaoh's daughter found him. I actually believe it's kind of a semi-sweet thing when you think about it, is that Moses doesn't name anybody in the Bible, but he gives homage to the person that was called his, his stepmother in Egypt, and I believe later his lover. But, uh, go figure that one out. I, yeah, creepy. But... <laughs> She was only about eight to nine years older than he was. And, and it says she finds him in the Nile. The Bible passage, she finds him in the Nile, sends him back to his mother till she's old enough to claim him. Then she claims him and takes him to Egypt. Then the story jumps ahead 40 years. You miss everything that took place. 
in her life in Egyptian history, it doesn't say anything about a child, but she was she bore the title Pharaoh's daughter, and I think this was an, an homage to her in Moses' book. Um, Here's a question, real quick, yeah. not to cut you off, not to stop you. Uh, you know, this is is very similar in a lot of areas to the story of Jesus. It is. How much, in a way. Yeah. How much do you think the story of Jesus is lifted directly from the story of Moses? Not, not not a lot of the Moses story, but they compare the Moses story with the basket and so on in the Nile to um, right. Osiris. And they say right. Osiris was like an early archetype of what Jesus would be. Right. right. And now, there's an interesting thing about that I want to bring up, and I wrote about this in the book. I say people say, oh, this didn't happen to Moses. It's just a, obviously, this is the myth of Moses because it looks exactly like the Osiris story. And I said, have you ever stopped to consider that perhaps Moses' mother, who by this time, these Israelites were very Egyptianized. They were living in this culture. And... I said, do you think for a moment that maybe she knew the story of, of Osiris? And do you think she knew exactly where the Pharaoh's daughter was going to be bathing? And do you think when it says she sent her daughter Miriam to follow the basket uh, because they, they knew exactly what time of day and where, and I can't remember how it's worded, but where the Pharaoh's daughter was bathing with her servants. And... Um, and it also says they didn't set this basket out into this main expanse of the River Nile to be, you know, fodder for crocodiles and things right. like that. And that it drifted down the main channel. Very it, lucky baby, by the way. Very lucky baby. What yeah. the verse actually says was she took the basket and placed it amongst the reeds on the banks of the Nile. And where Pharaoh's daughter came to bathe. So she put it there. And she sent her daughter to watch. And do you think for a moment that perhaps Moses' mother was a pretty smart cookie? She knew what the story of Osiris was all about, and she played right into the Egyptian story. Mm. And she, she put him in a basket just like Osiris, puts him in the Nile just like Osiris. And because she's playing into recreating what... Recreating history. She's yeah, recreating, recreating history. it. Yeah. For the purpose of drawing that spiritual element in. And right. so. So if this was indeed Hatshepsut, she was not much more than 9 to 10 years old. Um, she found this child. The Bible says she sends him back to his mother until she's old enough to take him. Now, here's an interesting thing. In Hatshepsut's story, she raises a young man to power by bringing him into her household, making him the steward of her household. He tutored her daughter. Tutors to the royal kids were generally generals of armies or high officials or high nobility. They weren't your little school marms. She brings this guy into her household, and he tutors her daughter. His name is Senenmut. Now, Senenmut, literally translated in Egyptian, means mother's brother. And so what happens here, I believe, is Hatshepsut gave him his... Oh, we know she named... She gave him the name Senenmut in Egyptian history. Um, and so we don't know this is Moses in Egyptian history. We just know it's a, a guy. It says, right, born right. commoners, she raises him to power. She gives him the name Senenmut. Senenmut means mother's brother. Or in other words, I, your mother, elevate you to the status of brother to the gods with me. Mm. And then she gives him 92 other royal titles. And I already mentioned some of these. Amongst them were the Grand Vizier of Egypt, which is really the, the pharaoh in the place of pharaoh. 
Right. And she gives him the hereditary crown prince of Egypt, amongst many other priestly titles and 92 royal titles. Now, what's very interesting about this guy is about the time he turns 40, which is about the time that Moses would have turned 40, around you know, 40, 40 years, uh, uh, 1486 B.C., thereabouts, Senenmut completely disappears out of Egyptian history. Huh. He, he's got two amazingly grandiose tombs. You can visit them today. He's got an astrological calendar on the ceiling of one of his tombs that is still accurate today. It's just an amazing calendar and uh, star chart. And uh, so this guy has two amazing tombs. He's never buried in them. They're never even finished. Uh, there's no record of how he dies. Um, we do know that he was a col close courtier to the queen, Hatshepsut. Now think of Hatshepsut, almost think of Elizabeth I of England. She had that kind of a reign. And very peaceful, but very uh, in power as a woman. And he would be like the Essex kind of a guy. <laughs> you know, he was the, the constant lifelong lover, I think. And there, right. these were the theories about them. And there's even pornographic drawings on a cave. I've seen some of that. Yes, I've seen some of the cave. Up above I've her temple, that. the workers' cave. Yes. I was up in there, and I took a picture of that where it's got sentiment, shagging head <laughs> And, uh, and Don't they have some of this stuff like blocked out? So when tourists go, like the, like the penis is blocked out and some of these not, things. Well, not on that one. You you can't really tourists aren't allowed up there. We we got up there because John knows people. He's an archaeologist, and the government guys were there with us to walk us up the mountainside. And uh, so it was pretty cool. But uh, you can't just go up there as a tourist unless you get government. No, but they found, uh, and I saw this recently. They found uh, cave art or art in Egyptian uh, uh, pyramids. That have a pornographic, uh, they're pornographic in nature, and part of tours in Egypt, they actually cover up the private parts of. You know, <laughs> it, what's very interesting, I saw a lot of the god, god Min, um, who is the 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 god. You think it's a it's a like a, a head shop gift or something, but you see these little Egyptian statues of the little guy with a huge penis sticking out, huge erection. Um, that's the god Min, and he's all over all these temples. And uh, you don't see it blocked out anywhere. I think where you may, I'm just guessing on this, but I think the, the Coptic Christians took over a lot of these sites uh, 1,700 years ago, and they, they plastered over a lot of this stuff. They, and all of that. that might be where some of that is from. But uh, um, you, know, you can go to any big major temple site. You can go to Ramses Temple and see Min, with a big boner right there on the sidewall of his temple. <laughs> so uh, it's like, wow, hey. I remember I took a picture of that and sent it home to my yeah, wife. Yeah, they, they don't, they don't, they don't hey, teach you. They don't talk about this kind of stuff on ancient aliens. No, they don't. No, they don't. <laughs> well, I'd like um, to see Giorgio Tuchelos talk about this, actually, to be honest I, with you. I don't think he could. Well, <laughs> did I say that out loud? Giorgio, I love you in a certain kind of weird way. So, um, but, but I just love know. his hair. You know, my, my daughter got to touch his hair at the symposium. Oh, that's so cool. Paradigm Symposium in 2012. So he was very cool. He was very nice to have here, I will say that. Um, um, I think he's a bizarre little fellow, but uh, <laughs> um, uh, he was a nice guy. I'll say but that. has great hair. Has great hair. Um, boy, his career's going to go like down the tubes if he goes bald. You know what I'm saying? That's Yeah, that's a career killer right there for him. Whew. But at some point, he'll start wearing a wig like Michael Jackson. 
There it is. Just as long as he doesn't do the nose thing. Yeah, so, he's already light-skinned, but that's a different story. Well, if I can get on, on sentiment for one more second here. <laughs> yeah, please, we're just derailing this story, this, is, this is just a story that, that I can talk forever on it, so I, I tr I'm trying to encapsulate it, but he's got all this stuff. He's the Grand Vizier. He's all of this. Uh, he left behind nine statues of him in with loving, embracing the, the young princess. Things He was very close to Hatshepsut. But he disappears. And she dies nearly almost the same time. Now, the interesting thing about Hatshepsut, she was the daughter of Tutmosis I. He dies, leaves his son, Tutmosis II, as the pharaoh, and his daughter, Hatshepsut, or Matakari at the time, and he marries them. This was just the way they did, to strengthen the blood, you know. And uh, so they were brother and sister married, and he was weak and sickly. Go figure. He dies right around 27 or 28 years old, something like that. She claims the throne, even though his three-year-old son by a harem wife is the next pharaoh, Tutmosis III. But he's only three years old at the time of his father's death, so Hatshepsut takes over. And she actually co-regent with him for about six years. Then she, for all practical purposes, deposes him and pushes him aside Puts him in the royal school, you know, all of this and that, and he's still, he ends up being the general of her armies, and there's still a peaceful thing going on there. But she reigned for over 20 years. And uh, uh, when she dies, Senenmut has disappeared from the scene. Tutmosis III comes to the throne right around 30, 31 years old, and he takes that throne uh, with a vigor. And uh, he's been waiting in the wings. He's been the military commander. She never really had any major battles other than possibly in Punt and other places. But she had more trade missions and things. But he starts to eradicate some of her statuary and some of her. They did on temples what was called erasure, where a new pharaoh would scrape off, literally scrape off the old pharaoh's cartouche and put their own in his place. A very famous one uh, uh, um, example of, of erasure. You know the Abydos uh, glyph, the Abydos lintel, that shows the, the helicopter and the tank yes. and, and all yes, of that. Yes. And people look at that and they say, um, they say, see, you know, there's a UFO ancient thing. aliens. Yeah, you and I, aliens. I say, I, I, I say, I remember I was in a discussion online with somebody. I said, I, I hate to be the killjoy at this buzz party here. I said, but because I love the ancient alien theme, I said, but I got to tell you something. I said that ain't ancient helicopters. I said, that is a product of erasure, where one pharaoh would come and scrape off the other pharaoh's name, mm -hmm. put his in the place, either paint it over, plaster it over, uh, chisel it off, scrape it off, dig in a new one. And this and the, the Abydos lintel is, is a prime example of erasure having been done three times over. And you can actually, with infrared cameras now, they've gone in, you can separate out the three different layers and see pretty much everything that was there. And the inscriptions are intact. And so you can see three different versions of inscription on top of each other. But when you look at the different layers, you can see how when they laid across each other, you got something that looks kind of like a helicopter here. Right. Because there's a swoop of this that's part of that one, a nick of this that's part of that one, and, and so on. And I, I showed the pictures, and I was in a discussion, and people were like, uh, you're part of the conspiracy to cover that. <laughs> you and nasty debunker. 
I said, you got to be kidding me. I said, I said, come on, isn't it more exciting to see that there were three different pharaohs who used the same block? I said, isn't that exciting to you to learn what's underneath it? And, you know, but anyway, that's erasure. Tape. And then somewhere, uh, George Otukulis showed up and said, no, it has to be aliens. has to be aliens. <laughs> well, uh, when Hatshepsut died, Tutmose III started wiping out her stuff, but he stopped. He, he fell short of that, and he he just, they did this to, to, to prove, I am now the king. I am now the guy. And so I'm, I'm taking over this temple. I'm doing this. And it was interesting. He reigns for almost 40 years. And in his old age, his young son, Amenhotep II, comes to the throne at age 18. And he is the one who pushes his father. He says, I'm Pharaoh now. I'm going to finish this job. There was apparently some animosity there. And uh, he goes in and he eradicates every image of Hatshepsut off her own temple, that very famous temple of, of uh, Jeshur Jeshuru at Der el-Bahri in Luxor. That, that that colonnaded low temple in the rock face, uh, mm-hmm. he took every image of her off. Um, he he took he crashed her statues. Everything of her was gone, uh, with very rare exception. And what's very interesting is at the same time now, this is forty years after his disappearance, he also not only eradicates every image of Hatshepsut the queen, but it eradicates every image of Senenmut. And uh, I have a working theory that's pure speculation, pure speculation, based on educated conjecture. But it was my take, I, I, I speculated, do you think that perhaps when he was eradicating Hatshepsut, he also eradicated Senenmut because Senenmut had come back as Moses after that 40 hmm. stint. And all this crap took place under his reign in the first five years of his reign, and what does he do? He eradicates all their images. Huh. Senate uh, yeah. included. And now, I don't know that that's the fact, but I do know that, that it makes some sense, but I speculate. It does, yeah. So all of this stuff starts to point to um, this man, Senate as being very possibly my candidate, I think, for Moses. And there are other aspects, of course, I wrote a whole book about it with John. So, well, half the book is, is mine. But right. <laughs> uh, uh, he's, uh, um, this is a man that there's a lot of, where you don't have firsthand evidence, archaeologically speaking, you can hail mm-hmm. to secondhand information to establish the story. Um, there is, uh, if I can wax biblical for a couple of more minutes, remember the beginning of the Israelites' sojourn in Egypt, as it was called, and that they were there, the Bible says, for about 400 years. Their family was there. But how did it start? Uh, Jacob, also named Israel, had his 12 sons who became the leaders of the 12 tribes. They were just a tribal family, a Bedouin right. family in Canaanite, in Canaan. And, of course, right. the brothers sell off Joseph into slavery. We know the whole story. How much of that is mm-hmm. fanciful, we don't know. But he ends up in Egypt and eventually over a number of years has risen to power and becomes the Grand Vizier of Egypt. And uh, then his brothers come to him. It's 20 years later. They don't even know he's alive. He's the Grand Vizier of Egypt. They don't recognize him. They have to come to him to get permission to graze their flocks in Goshen, the fertile uh, one of the... the it's uh, it's to the to the west and the north of Cairo, what is today present-day Cairo, 
They were ruling in Memphis at that time. They're in the north, the capital of the north. And uh, uh, his brothers come and ask permission of the, of the Grand Vizier to graze. And we know the story, and Joseph doesn't reveal himself right away and so on. But when he finally does, there's a big crying on everybody, we thought you were dead and God meant it for good and kind of thing. There's the biblical lesson there. But the interesting thing is that Joseph says to his brothers, now I'm going to give you this land of Goshen, and you have to go into Pharaoh and present yourselves as the family of Jacob, and I'm going to present you as my brothers. He says, but when you go in, this is the biblical passage, when you go in, he says, tell the king that you are shepherds and that you have been shepherds from the days of your youth because the Egyptians hate shepherds. I thought, what the hell does that mean? And I glossed <laughs> over that so much when I was here. Why is he telling them the Egyptians hate you guys, so tell them this is what you do? Right. Well, the interesting thing is that the Hyksos, one of the original meanings of this was that they were the shepherding peoples from the Middle East, from the Canaanite region, the Syrian region, and so on. When the Hyksos came in, they'd for centuries, about 800 years, been coming into the Delta region infiltrating, uh, just bringing their flocks in, and of course they moved into the towns and the cities, and they became the people of the cities, and they got into the civic stuff in the cities, and they eventually took over in government, and they eventually overthrew the northern kingdom of Egypt. And they, re they established their own pharaohship up in the north for about 108 years. And during this time, these Hyksos people were the ones who did this. They had their own monarchy, and then the Egyptian monarchy was down in the south. So the Hyksos, by definition, were the shepherding peoples from the east. From, they were also known as the Asiatics who came from the Canaanite region. And so these shepherding peoples are actually peoples of the same Semitic bloodstock as the children of Israel were. They're all from the Middle East. And so Joseph says to him in his position as Grand Vizier, when you go to Pharaoh, tell him you're shepherds because the Egyptians hate shepherds. Why did he say that? Because these aren't the Egyptian kings. This is these Hyksos kings. And it kind of establishes really a plausible setting for when this took place. And why was Joseph, a Semitic Canaanite, uh, a Bedouin kid, elevated to a position of Grand Vizier? Was it just because he interpreted dreams? You know, uh, you know I could do that, too. It's like, oh, Angel, let's see. Um, uh, yeah, that, that dream about the onion? Uh, it means this and, uh, you know, and so on. You can do all of that. Right. I'm not saying it was fake. <laughs> but he was. that's why the Bible says he was elevated, because of his gifts in interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. But right, I think right. it's also because they were cousins. They were blood brothers. They were all of the same blood stock. And uh, this is why then, at the end of that period... Remember in the Bible it says, and Joseph and all his brothers died, and, and uh, they were buried, and so on. And it says, and then a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew not Joseph, or in other words, had no regard for Joseph. Right. And he said, the Hebrews or the Israelites are growing too numerous, and he slaps them into bondage. Well, Amos I, who was the father of Tutmosis I, who was the father of Hatshepsut, so her grandfather, came in and cleared the Hyksos out of the northern kingdom and reunited the kingdom of Egypt. But what did they do? They took the remnant of all these people and, and, and in essence, put them into servitude, into bondage. So 
they wouldn't rise up against them. What does the biblical passage say? This king, who didn't know Joseph, slaps them all into slavery and says, we're going to put them in slavery lest they rejoin our enemies and retake our nation from us, is what it says in the biblical passage. This would have been almost the first, saying, we don't want these guys to realign with anybody and to take our, slap them into bondage, which right. was a common practice. So it's things like this, and I'll stop on the storytelling with this stuff there. It is things like this as you start to look at these biblical stories where you have to go extrapolate some secondhand information. But what you can start establishing is maybe not rock-solid firsthand fact, but you can establish a line of plausibility. And if that plausibility exists, I think there's room for the story. And so these are the people. Senenmut is the guy, I believe, was Moses. That's an amazing story. I, look, it, it's fascinating to me. That's why I didn't have much to say, but uh-huh, yeah. Uh, it it really is a fa- fascinating correlation there. Let me ask you a question, though, uh, Scott, because this is something that I've been uh, looking at more and more in the last few years. Uh, what is the con- – and now we're speeding up and moving forward here a few hundred sure. years, but uh, what do, do you think there is a, uh, a legitimate connection between the pharaohs of Egypt and the current monarch in England, for example? Because I've heard – and I've read uh, different things where the families of Egypt, of some of the pharaohs, are pretty much the ones that seeded the current monarch in England. You know, I've got a rough time with that. Um, I will be the first to admit I don't know enough information about that because I haven't made that any kind of a particular area of study. So I, I don't know that topic very well. But I will tell you this, that that I I believe we have such a handle on what we know about pharaonic Egypt, even up into the Greco-Roman period, when it start, when it really faded away into nothing. When you're talking Greco-Roman, you're looking at Cleopatra the first, Cleopatra the second, and so on. Um, these kings, I do not believe, laid the groundwork for any kind of British monarchy. Um, there is, however, a different version of that, right. which says that, and this is very, very interesting. It ties to the Exodus. When Moses led the people out of Egypt, these people, by the way, were not all that committed to Moses. He was the guy, he was the guy doing the thing, and he led him out. And uh, remember when they got to Mount Sinai and he goes up into the mountain, he's up there for 40 days, and uh, they come, the people come to Aaron, his brother, and say, they say, where is this man Moses, it says in the Bible. In the vernacular translation, that means, where's this guy? This Moses, this guy who let us out, he has disappeared. Build us an idol that we can worship. And what they build him? Uh, an Egyptian god, the golden calf, Hathor. And they're at her mountain. That's why. Anyway, so when they're in this exodus, the tribe of Dan breaks off from the rest of the Israelites. It's in the Bible, and it says, and they, right. went, they went north. Gone. Tribe of Dan. See you, Dan. And uh, um, But what's very interesting is, let's move forward a little bit, then backwards again. Um, in Ireland, there is the, the ancient mythology of the Tuatha de Danann. And the Tuatha de Danann are basically the elven folk. This is who they became. But the Tuatha, uh, in, the, in, the, in the old pre-Celtic Ireland, uh, we're talking the megalith era, um, the Tuatha were the bright, shining 
kings, tall, elegant, shining kings who descended from heaven. Mm. And and they they intermingled. Uh, think of the Nephilim. It's the same story with the Watchers right. of the Nephilim. Uh, the tall, elegant, bright, shining ones, the, 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 the Watchers. Uh, well, they all came down, and there were the wars, and they were driven into the hollow hills and became known as the Elven Folk. Uh, and Elven, by the way, the, uh, the L in there is the E-L of Elohim, uh, the E-L of, of, of uh, El Elyon of El, the Hebrew name for God. But that's right. the the elven folk were. So now the Tuatha de Danan were um, Tuatha basically means the people of or those of, and a day is a reference to deity, and uh, um, Anu or Danu uh, the the Tuatha de Danan is to the goddess Danu, children of the goddess Danu or the people of the goddess Danu. Danu, right. Danu, and it's now Danu is also very closely linked with the tribe of Dan, and there were the Danoi, who were said to have left Egypt from Moses and went north up the Nile, and out into the Mediterranean, crossed the Mediterranean to the Minoans, and they became, and then they moved over into northern Israel, and up in northern wave north in the northern north of Israel is the the site that they believe the Danoi. Existed some of the same archaeological evidence is there for the Danoi that's over in the Minoan Islands or the Greek Islands, and so uh, there, there's a belief that there's a connection here, the Dan, the Danoi, uh, the Danu, uh, but it's also been rendered the Tuatha de Anu, hmm. and the Anu is of course a linkage to the people of the Anunnaki, right. And, of course, we all know the Anunnaki through the much ado about the Anunnaki in ancient alien studies. Right, right. I don't right. want to say studies, research. Wow. Um, and so I use that Tales. Word. Tales. <laughs> and uh, the Anunnaki, of course, were just the gods, the god cast, like the Olympians were to the Greeks, the Anunnaki were to the ancient Sumerians, Mesopotamians. And you can read all about them in the Kineoform tablets. You can find some great books. And, by the way, you want a great wonderful, fun, exciting, sexy night with your loved one, get a copy of the translation of the cuneiform texts of the Anunnaki and the tale of Atrahasis. Man, this stuff's exciting. Yeah, but see, remember, if you do that, if you put one of those out with your girl, chances are you're going to end up single. I got to tell you something. When I was, when I was writing the uh, reptilian book, I was reading um, in... Uh, uh, Daly, I think her last name is Stephanie Daly, who uh, did the translation, a modern translation of these cuneiform texts. And the story in it was, I was like, oh my God. And I, I ran upstairs and I woke up my wife. <laughs> it's about 2 45 in the morning. I said, Rainy, are you awake? <laughs> And she sat up on her. She she's so cool. She loves me so much, and, you know. She because she puts up with me. She sits up on her elbow and she puts her chin in her hand. She goes, "Yeah, what do you got?" <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "You have got to hear this account of the Anunnaki from the cuneiform texts." She's like, and she's like, "Okay, let her rip, baby." <laughs> I read this, and she put up with me. But it, it's an exciting read, frankly. And uh, it was exciting when you can shed light on history and all these things we hear and then look at it where it comes from the source point. 
And uh, uh, as a matter of fact, hold on here, hold on. I know I'm on I'm on live radio here, but live radio. I, so we we're gonna hold and, and have dead air for a second. Here in my bookshelf. Great radio. Is the uh, <laughs> scintillating <laughs> live radio. Yes, um, yes. I've got. Uh, it's called the Myths from Mesopotamia: The Creation, Flood Myth, Gilgamesh, and Others, uh, mm-hmm. by uh, uh, translated by Stephanie Daly. And if this is dog-eared enough, I should be able to open right to the spot. But some of this stuff was absolutely incredible, the way it reads and the way the story reads. And it's got the creation where Elil or Enlil, the chief god, uh, uh, conscribes his brother god Enki to create primeval man to do our work for us, um, to dig our trenches, to... Um, mine our resources to till our ground and so on. And Enki does this. And uh, um, it's, it's very interesting that uh, um, the story is very similar to the Garden of Eden story. And uh, huh. when you start reading in this cuneiform text, now there was one Atrahasis. Listen to how this reads. This is English translation of the cuneiform. Okay. Now there was one Atrahasis whose ear was open to his god Enki. He would speak with his God, and his God would speak with him. Atrahasis made his voice heard and spoke to his Lord. How long will the gods make us suffer? Will they make us suffer illness forever? Enki made his voice heard and spoke to his servant. Call the elders, the senior men, start an uprising in your own house. Let heralds proclaim, let them be loud noise in the land. Do not revere your gods, do not pray to your goddesses, but search out the door of Namatara. Bring a baked loaf into his presence, may the flower offering reach him, may he be shamed by the presence, and wipe away his hand. Atrahasis took the order, gathered the elders to his door, Atrahasis made his voice heard, and spoke to the elders, and the story goes on. This was the, the rebellion of Atrahasis against the gods when the humans won their freedom. And it was Enki who was condemned, and he and his followers, to the subterranean caverns of the earth that dwell forever because they gave the forbidden knowledge of the gods. And you compare that to the Genesis story and so on. Right. But right. No, that makes all, of, all of this, your original question was about the pharaonic line. And I got yeah. on on the dining. No, but you know what? That, that but that makes perfect correlation, and actually, it does you know make perfect sense that it would be similar to the Garden of Eden story when you consider that a lot of the Bible and a lot of the stories in the Bible are very similar to older stories. For example, Noah and Gilgamesh. Well, you know, uh, and I just crossed over the Gilgamesh epic when I was flipping right. through here. Um, what's very um, very interesting is that the biblical story of the Garden of Eden. And some of the creation myths, the flood story, uh, I'm sorry, the creation myth, the flood story, and so on, as they appear in the book of Genesis, are really, how would I say this? If Moses, Moses, when he created Judaism, Mm -hmm. and he didn't create it, he codified it. Right, right. When he codified Judaism, he really codified it out of whole cloth. He had Canaanite religion that he incorporated with Egyptian spirituality, with 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 Cushite spirituality, with uh, Sinatic, with uh, Mesopotamian, and you see all of these things really wrapped into what he created Judaism with. And he created Judaism out of whole cloth. Now there's one very, very interesting passage uh, that 
we're all very familiar with that I got a totally new take on when I was researching this. And I got this information from David Roll, who is, who is quite the Egyptologist. Uh, he's an agnostic, a lot like me, but he writes about biblical things. And maybe you wouldn't be able to tell this by listening to me, but I'm a complete agnostic because I just don't know. <laughs> I don't know who God is anymore. And, uh, but that does not mean I'm not drawn to it. So um, uh, he wrote about Anki. I'm sorry, about this, the scene with Moses where Moses at the burning bush. And remember that, that great familiar passage that we've all heard and not all of us even know anything about what it means, where uh, Moses says, So whom shall I tell the people sent me? And God said, You tell them I am sent you. I am that I am. And uh, that's what he did. I'm that I am. I am that I am. And we always pronounce it, I am that I am. But what he's saying is, I am that I am that they speak of. All right? Now, that's what he tells him. Now, what's very interesting, that's in Hebrew where it's written down, but it's an ancient Mesopotamian wordplay that's incorporated into the Hebrew. And without getting into the the, 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 the cold, hard, eye-glossing, stale linguistics of language, which, by the way, can be really cool when it's really revealing like this, but do you know what that phrase actually meant? It was a wordplay in ancient Mesopotamian, and it meant this. In essence, literally, what was being said in that passage was, Whom shall I say sent me? And God said, You tell them, I am sent you. I am that Anki they speak of. The, the second I huh. was a wordplay for the name Anki. Right. Out of Mesopotamia. And so, in essence, God is either one, and it doesn't give an explanation in the language. He's, we don't know if he's equating himself to Anki, saying, Anki, hey, that's me. Or is he saying, I am that guy they call Anki? Well, that's really me. Right. Um, we don't know which connotation is there, but what's fascinating to me is that the connotation is there at all. So here is a mention of, I am that Anki they speak of. And who supposedly penned this? It was Moses who penned this. So uh, it's, it's interesting stuff when you start looking at these stories and saying there's more to it. Now, when you talk about the Tuatha Dei Danan in Ireland, the Tuatha Dei Danu, the Tuatha Dei Anu, um, it's supposedly this tribe of Israel broke off and went up into the northern Mesopotamian region right. where they ended up and they intermingled with the remnant of the tribe of the Anunnaki, those who worship the Anunnaki and they, the great serpent culture. And they intermingled, and they moved west. And as they moved west, they founded the great royal houses of Europe, what would become Europe. Right. And they, uh, and remember, this is 1400 B.C., uh, thereabouts. And so in uh, a millennium... And here comes my connection to the British monarchs. And there's your connection to the British monarchs. <laughs> now, not only it's, that, look, I read, I read an article a couple of years ago, uh, back actually in 2011, I believe, uh, where they were talking about uh, that up to 70% of all British uh, folks are actually related to the Egyptian pharaoh Tutankhamun. You, you know, I, I, it's interesting. I've heard that, and I haven't seen the proof of that or the evidence of it, meaning I just haven't researched it, so I, I don't know, diddly squat <laughs> about it. But uh, I've just heard that. And... Uh, um, it, that's that's very interesting because they talk about how this 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 mixing of 
of Israelite and northern Mesopotamian um, founded the house, uh, you know, the house of Gwynedd. Right. Or, or, uh, uh, I'm pronouncing that wrong. Welsh, as always. And uh, they, they, they uh, founded all these royal houses. And if they indeed did this, um, yeah, you've got some linkage, not necessarily from Pharaoh himself, but you've got this linkage down through the ages uh, from mm-hmm. the Hebrew blood, and they were in Egypt and so on. Now, right. I happen to think that it gets a little too fantastical for me. When I start hearing the things about, well, Akhenaten was actually, you know, Jesus or something like that, I go, wait, what well, timeline are you living in? Yeah, the, the one that um, gets me, and and I kind of I'm a follower of a follower, or maybe somewhat, you know, believer of this person might have been the historical Jesus, quote unquote, uh, was Caesar Caesarian, the son of little, uh, the son of Caesar or Julius yes. Caesar. That now, story to me, it, it, it's very, very close to the Jesus if story. If you have not talked to him, you ought to talk to and get as a guest a man named Jeff Dougherty. And he just wrote the book last year and released it, uh, Apostle Paul Antichrist. Hmm. And now, um, it's a very interesting book. Uh, it's not as, as damning as that title makes it sound. It's not like, you know, the Apostle Paul was really Satan. <laughs> you know, it wasn't that, but... Uh, he writes this one more in, a, in a, a fictional narrative to get the point across. Now, he's done a follow-up book, which is going to be coming out pretty soon. I can't remember the title, but dealing with some of the same things. But his, his contention is this. During first century Judea, in first century Judea, there were four messianic sects, four major ones. And the four major ones are the ones that kind of won out uh, over everyone else. If you saw Monty Python's, Monty Python's The Life of Brian... That's you it know, right there, yeah. You know, and yeah. you see the uh, uh, what? What was the uh, uh, the the league that they were all part of? Oh, you remember what I'm talking about? You know, I remember Roman, but the uh, name. Yeah, it slips my tongue right now, but yeah. I know I know exactly what you're talking about. Romans go home and whatever. But the interesting thing about that is these four messianic sects represented four different political messianic sects. There right. was the there was the, the Jewish, if you will, the Jewish Messianic sect, which was Peter, led by Peter. You had the Herodian Messianic sect, which was led by the Apostle Paul. And Peter and Paul were constantly going at it in the New Testament. These guys were not friendly with each other, uh, and they did not care for each other's theology. But they supposedly are in the same New Testament. And well, they are in the same New Testament. There's the theory that that Jeff writes about in this book is the idea that that Pauline Christianity hijacked a real Christianity, and uh, um, it's an interesting stuff. And Paul was the the apostle. Paul was the the cousin to to uh, 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 he was a Herodian, uh, Her- uh, the cousin to Herod Antipas. That's what I'm looking for. And uh, um, and this is what he was upholding was the 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 Herodian or Roman really Christianity, and it's it's an interesting study. Uh, you got to talk to him. I should I should get his name to you. But yeah, uh, yeah, I'm definitely gonna look him up now. Are you kidding? <laughs> uh yeah, yeah, he's pretty amazing, Jeff Dougherty. But uh, um, that is the kind of stuff in the New Testament where you start to look at it and you start to ask the question. Uh, and and uh, Dovetail Lamp, that was this guy that I talked to uh, on my own radio show, and he had his book out about, uh, it was called Judas of Nazareth. He said the closest historical character you can find to Jesus was a man named Judas of Nazareth. 
Mm. And uh, because there were several candidates, and he believes that Jesus was an amalgamation. And the problem that that does, what does that do to Christianity and Christians' faith if they find out Jesus wasn't a real guy? Right. Because he was a composite. Um, and maybe all of mankind really is just, just uh, it's just all about anthropology. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and I'm not, I don't want to dissuade anybody from their faith by any means, but these are the things that, that you start to look at some of this stuff and you get a really different picture of what the Bible is about uh, and of what happened. And uh, um, this whole question you asked about the Pharaonic and all of this and into, into the great houses of Egypt, we start to see how some of this works. We start to see how even, even Christianity itself may be something different than what we were taught. And, uh, and so we, we have to be mm, very careful uh, with what we look at. And, and, of course, even with new theories like this, or, or uh, when you're getting into fringe theory like this, you have to be really careful. Because what if you're wrong? <laughs> you <know? Yeah. laughs> and you you're going to upset a lot of people, believe me. You, you know, it, it's, it's funny. Before, I, you stand before the, God and he goes, hey, you know this thing you were talking about? Uh, <laughs> I'm that guy and you're wrong. <laughs> I'm that guy. So, you know, anyway. but even, even people here on Earth, though, it's funny because I've done a lot of shows uh, dealing with different subjects of UFOs, aliens, conspiracies, uh, extraterrestrial visitation, contacts, uh, biblical stuff. But nothing has got me more in trouble, Scott, than when I talk about Jesus and the possibility that he is somebody that is completely different than what the Bible tells you he is. You know, that it's a, the, the, yeah. like you said, an amalgamation of all these different characters. And when I've said that in the past, I've gotten hate mail. And that's literally oh, yeah. the only time I get hate mail is when I talk about Jesus in a way that is contrary to what the popular belief of what Be, Jesus was. And you, you know what my problem is with that, and anybody listening out there that is an adherent to your faith, I was in the same faith, and I still, mm -hmm. i, I got to say, I haven't thrown out the baby with the bathwater. That's why I call myself agnostic. I really don't. <laughs> I'm not an atheist. I just don't know anymore. And... um I used to have all the answers. I could have answered all these questions. I was in ministry, for Pete's sake. Yes. And, yep. and, and now I just don't know anymore. I don't know those answers. I was I raised a Jehovah's true. Witness, for oh, Christ's there sake. There you go. There you go. For Christ's <laughs> sake. And, uh, Pun intended. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and I grew up surrounded by Jews in my family. So, you know, my mom's stepdad was Jewish, so we were the five goy in an ocean of Judaism in my family. And uh, so um, the thing about talking about any of this stuff, you're always going to have somebody who's offended. And I want to say, don't be offended, but look at it as something that could either strengthen your faith or it could be something that could make you question it. Right. But think. The idea is think. Think for yourself. And don't get pissed off because somebody might say something you don't like. Oh, he's offended my Jesus. And right. it's, like, it's like, you know what? How do you know for sure? Ask the questions. Do the study. To me, blind faith is, is blind living. Right. Um, I don't want to believe something because somebody told me it's so. Um, I want to believe something because I know it's so. And uh, we're getting in a totally different area. Yeah, unfortunately, though, uh, unfortunately, you know, we go with a lot of uh, of, of historical uh, stories uh, based on faith alone because there, there's very little evidence to just about anything. Right. Well, that's, that's a sad that's part the of it. 
Yeah. And, and then when you when you think you have some kind of evidence, then it turns out that, that you're wrong, like the helicopters in Egypt, for example. Right. You know? So, uh, and, and people it's are very, very tough. dogmatic about that. You right. can't be that dogmatic about things. Uh, what if you learn that uh, um, Jesus was a composited character? Mm -hmm. um, does that do away then with his divinity? The divinity of Christ is done away with. Or just something as simple as I was just reading something that somebody had written about me. I just happened to come across it because I was looking for something else. And uh, somebody was taking me to task because. How dare I even suggest that the Lord and Savior could have been married? And uh, <laughs> um, because in my book on the Nephilim, I actually mentioned the, the marriage of Jesus. Mary Magdalene, believe me, right. it fit in in context where I wrote it. Yeah, I believe that he was married. Um, was it Mary oh, Magdalene? I'll, I'll go a step further. I think he had kids. I think he probably did, too. Yeah. There's a couple of things to look at, and, and folks, just consider this, and this is what I was being taken to task for, and consider what you believe. If you're a believer in Jesus, that's great. Continue believing in Jesus. But consider some of the things about him. Uh, I had my former seminary buddies tell me, because I said this, that that was blasphemy. I said, why is it blasphemy for Jesus to have been married? I said, where does it say that the Messiah couldn't have a wife? Right. Um, it didn't say that anywhere, but it Nowhere. does say this. <laughs> His very, the, there was a, a first century Judean culture which still exists in Judaism today, and that is that a rabbi must be married. It wasn't law, but it was damn close to law. It was, it was, it was tradition. And... Uh, um, a rabbi was considered not worth his salt unless he was a married man. Now, Jesus in the New Testament is many times referred to as rabbi, a teacher. Right. And he was a rabbi of the people. Right. And uh, when they called him this, the, there was one qualification uh, that was tradition that he had to do before he was accepted as a rabbi. And what was his first recorded miracle of Jesus' public ministry? It was the changing the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Right. And my contention is that there have been things omitted from the story. That Jesus was, this was actually his wedding. And there's several things that point to it. Number one, another tradition from first century Judea and past and even present today is that in, at, at a wedding, the groom and his family are responsible for the wine. And... Here you've got Jesus. He's sitting at the wedding. You can see him talking with his friends. His mom comes to him, Mary. She's got a position of authority at this wedding. But she comes to not the groom who's responsible for the wine, the way you would read the story, but she comes to Jesus and says, no pun intended, oh, my God, we're out of wine. <laughs> and uh, um, what does Jesus say? He says, woman, calm down. I'll take care what, of it. What did she say? Oh, my Jesus? Or, oh, you? No, no, no. no. She right just there. comes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what do you say? What do you say? Jesus Christ. Oh, wait, uh, you're right there. Yeah. Hey, you, uh, come here. We didn't, mm. get more, we didn't get more wine. You know, one thing that is law, though, uh, Scott, and, and it's uh, a terrible, terrible law, we have to end the show in a couple minutes, and we oh. have to wrap up. That is the worst kind of law, but if we don't, Keith Rowland will completely get mad at me. And I understand know, don't want that happening, uh, but I want you. I want to give you a couple, uh, at least two minutes here to uh, give everybody your your uh, website information and how sure. to find your books. Which obviously Amazon is the the one of the best places to get the books. But uh, give out all your information to the audience. 
Sure. Well, l- l- let me do a, a couple of quick little plugs in there, too. Um, go for it. Go for it. We, uh, as you know, John Ward and I, uh, we write together. We do these trips together. And so on, we're, uh, we, we're uh, working on, on branding something for a, um, a, a television production that we were approached on, uh, History Trippers. And so we do these trips cool. out there. We're taking a big trip in June of this year under History Trippers and the Grayling Report. So it's John and me, Micah Hanks, Barry Fitzgerald, formerly of uh, Ghost Hunters International, uh, very much a, a researcher in other realms other than just mm-hmm. ghosts. And uh, James Swagger. Uh, uh, ah, that's my boy right there. There you go. We yeah. five are going to be leading a trip to Ireland in June. Very cool. And it's uh, June 12th or the 23rd. All you have to do is go to Exodus Reality. It's the name of our book on the Exodus. ExodusReality.com. Don't go to Exodus Realty. You'll actually get to a place. It'll try to sell you <laughs> desert land or something. So Exodus Reality. Dot com, and click on the the Ireland uh, link, and you'll see that and how to get your tickets and so on. It's uh, it's coming up pretty quick. We'd love to have you come along. We've only got twelve out of fifteen seats. We started advertising this about a week and a half, two weeks ago. We've got uh, twelve seats out of fifteen open spaces left. Um, we also have the Paradigm Symposium coming up. Go to paradigmsymposium dot com. Uh, Twenty fifteen. We've got uh, Randall Carlson. We've got. Uh, uh, oh, several names you're going to know. I'm not going to use up all the time to name the names. You know them. Uh, go see, uh, ex, uh, I'm sorry, ParadigmSymposium.com. Then our books are just available everywhere. Uh, you can go to Amazon.com. You can see them on our websites and click on the links and so on. And I also do, with John Ward, we do uh, Intrepid Radio Sunday nights. So I know I'm on another radio network. Sorry about it's that. It's all good. Guys. It's all good. It's, all so, good. It's, not a, uh, it's not a time slot that I fill, so it's all good. There you go. We have fun with it. <laughs> On Sunday, indeed. So, uh, Scott, uh, we got to wrap up here, but it's awesome having you on the show, and we want to have you back on. And I hope it doesn't take three years to have you back on the show. Well, I hope not. <laughs> Anytime, brother. Thanks, Andy. You're, the, you're awesome, guys. Uh, this has been Scott Allen Roberts, and I want to thank him deeply for being here for an hour and a half. Uh, it's just awesome having him on the show. In fact, we went over an hour, as you guys know, because. This is just an amazing guest to have on. Thank you so much, Scott, again, for being here. And uh, Lori, who was our guest in the first hour, thank her also for being on the show. Uh, For Keith Rowland, for the Dark Matter Radio Network, for the other guy who's not here right now, I am Angel. This is Skywatchers Radio, and we'll be back next week with more show. Stick around to Dark Matter Radio Network for more programming. Talk to you guys next week. Good night, everybody. Hills have eyes and a common truth. I doubt the stars will ever move.